welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are talking about not just any old Ultraman, but Sheen Ultraman. The uh, new film came out in Japan about this time last year, played a little tiny bit in the United States in January, finally came out on digital and Blu-ray this month. So Sean and I have watched it. Sean's a big Ultraman fan. I want to be a big Ultraman fan because I loved this movie. Uh, and we've talked about the other Sheen movie, Sheen Godzilla. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had to talk about it. Yes, yeah. I mean, I've I've had now, what, last summer and this summer, I've had my Ultraman adventures. And really, uh, two summers ago when I watched Ultra Q. So it has become like a summer tradition for me to watch the Ultraman shiz. And it is fun now that we can actually together talk about an Ultraman thing with Sheen Ultraman. Indeed. So that is going to be fun. Uh, just quick reaction to the movie before we get into it, Sean. Two thumbs up, kicks ass. It is it is very good, especially like it's fun for me since the only Ultraman stuff I've seen is the Showa era stuff. So like the the mid to late sixties and the early seventies, um, and this is very much like um, I think it's a thing you can, as evidenced by you, Jonathan, is something you can watch and enjoy without knowing any Ultraman stuff. But specifically, this is like a sort of pseudo remake slash update of Ultraman 1, the original Ultraman series, in the same kind of way that Shin Godzilla is that for the original Godzilla movie of taking the same sort of ideas and themes and some similar plot elements, but obviously updating them and changing them for um, the modern kind of setting. Uh, and it is very fun to see it that way. And it is also very wild to go from 1970s Ultraman special effects to the special effects in this movie and just seeing the different ways you kind of interpret the character's powers and that kind of stuff. It's it's very fun. So I think if from a, a like old school Ultraman fan kind of perspective or like someone who is enjoying the old Ultraman stuff, I really like this movie from that perspective. Yeah, and I just, you know, obviously I have some familiarity with, like, kaiju stuff, and I could recognize the kinds of Showa-era kaiju action they were playing with in the, mm -hmm. you know, effect sequences, which is very cool how they did it. Like Shin Godzilla, it's going for a different kind of effect thing than Shin Godzilla was doing, but it's a similar kind of, like, it's not trying to look like a modern superhero movie, and it's doing really cool stuff with its effects. But honestly, I just think it's a very striking piece of filmmaking. I think mm -hmm. it's like really interesting in how it is shot and put together, and how it tells its story. Uh, and I just liked it on that level. And I think it is, it is I don't want to say like 100% accessible, because it's very clearly doing some interesting like leaps. Um, and in fact, I was watching uh, the, episode, the first episode of the original Ultraman this morning, just for fun. And it was interesting like where it doesn't do scenes that that did and there's just some fun jumps around with that but it is like if this kind of thing is interesting to you i think it is worth watching yeah and as you say there's just a sort of like fundamental filmmaking level on which it is um really interesting and compelling and there's like because i think a lot of that filmmaking dna which here, you know, part of it is like it's all coming from that Neon Genesis Evangelion tradition, right? Because this is a Higuchi Shinji directed it. It's written by Hideaki Anno. Anno is obviously also involved in the production in other ways, like he did some of the mocap for Ultraman. Um, but there's a lot of Eva DNA in here. Um, but a lot of the filmmaking stuff in Eva and the weird camera angles and some of the editing choices and stuff like that, that was one of the things I learned in watching Old Ultraman is a lot of that shit comes from the more experimental episodes of Old Ultraman. Um, yeah. And so th that is actually like a really cool like representation of 
the show at era Ultraman stuff is the the weirder filmmaking style, the very kind of interesting and strange camera choices they make about where to place the camera, where to place like the actors in the frame and stuff like that. It feels like it is carrying on that kind of tradition, and that is a very fun element as well. Absolutely. So we will talk all about that in a bit. So stick around for that if you want to hear about Sheen Ultraman. A bit of housekeeping before we dive into stuff. Uh, Japanimation Station Season 3, The Classic Adventures of Lupin III, is barreling along. Last week we talked about Part 2, and we introduced you all to Japanese Vampire Jesus, which, if you don't understand that reference, you should go listen to that Lupin episode, even if you've never watched a second of Lupin, because it's a very entertaining conversation, because that show is wild. This week on Japanimation Station, episode 4 airing tomorrow night, we have uh, an episode all about Hayao Miyazaki and Lupin, where we are talking about The Castle of Cagliostro, his first ever feature film, and the two episodes of Lupin the Third, part 2 he directed, which are absolute, you know, masterclasses. So that is another very fun episode that should be notable to anyone interested in really anime at all. I don't know. I feel like the Venn diagram of are you interested in Lupin the Third or are you interested in, in Hayao Miyazaki? Pretty big over. I hope. Yes, and I feel like we've had over the years um, people like want us to do episodes on on stuff like like Ghibli movies and things like that. Yes. And and specifically, I know um, Cagliostro. So if there's anyone who's been waiting, here we go. We have finally done a Castle of Cagliostro episode. And this is the first time I ever saw that movie, um, yeah. and so that was also uh, very fun. And we talk about it for a very long time. So yes, you will get your money's worth. You pay no money for this podcast, but if you did, you would get your money's worth. Um, but yeah, so that's all going on. Uh, JonathanLack.com is popping off the Weekly Stuff Wordcast with all sorts of stuff, including my per first piece of stuff this week, which is that this weekend was Barbenheimer, the uh, movie sensation sweeping the nation. Truly, I... So, so for those who don't know somehow, the, the whole thing is obviously Greta Gerwig's Barbie, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, scheduled to release on the same day. I think because the respective studios just thought they would be a good piece of counter-programming, this turned into a meme because both of these movies were aggressively and, like, very intelligently marketed. Uh, and their marketing, obviously, it was very funny to see the pink, you know, popcorn, you know, like, um, um, cotton candy world of Barbie next to trailers for Oppenheimer about the invention of the nuclear bomb and the destruction of humanity. And so people made a sensation out of it online i have to admit i really thought it was just going to be like a kind of dumb twitter thing because twitter does dumb stuff like this a lot and then you started to realize over the last few weeks there was like a kind of like hype building around it that was not just a twitter thing it was a real world thing to the degree that these two movies came out this weekend it's the biggest box office weekend since spider-man no way home came out which was like three years ago now. Barbie grossed $155 million this weekend. Oppenheimer did $80 million, which I think is even the more amazing of the two because that's mm -hmm. one. The number two movie at the box office doesn't usually gross $80 million. And that is a three-hour R-rated biopic about the development of nuclear arms, not usually the kind of movie that makes superhero money. So, yeah, big weekend at the box office. The busiest I've ever seen my local theater film scene, I, where I saw both of these this weekend. Uh, and, like, such a sensation. My mom independently went and did both of these with no prompting from me. So, like, everyone was on the Barbenheimer train. It was crazy. Yes, I, I have not seen either of them, so I've, I have not gotten on the Barbenheimer train. But, yes, it is, it is like, it is wild <laughs> to see from, yes. like, the outside. Um 
it does it does feel like you know like some of this kind of stuff coupled with the decline of of the box office you see with like uh Disney and Marvel's stuff it feel this is some of the stuff that makes it feel like the cinematic trends are shifting to me of like what's going to be like the studios are going to be chasing this right from now on like they're going to be trying to like replicate and Barbie and or Oppenheimer in some kind of way um I feel like is where things are going to go and then we'll get super sick of this um but yeah this the, it is it is it it has like a big kind of like shift feel to it yeah and who knows what lessons Hollywood will take from this if the lesson they take is more movies about Mattel toys they're fucking idiots uh if the lesson they take is more movies that give interesting filmmakers a canvas to take a big swing and then you market them really intelligently and they are good you could make a lot of money um and i think that is the lesson they should take hollywood doesn't usually take the right lessons from these sorts of things so we shall see but it definitely does feel like a sea change i mean also like there's so many records broken with all of this barbie is far and away the biggest opening weekend for a movie by a female director in mm-hmm. history uh you know oppenheimer like again for it is close to the record for an r-rated movie like the only things above it are stuff like deadpool um all of this is is really crazy and again them landing on the same weekend it just like i've been hearing this narrative of like the box office is dying the box office is not dying certain things at the box office are dying like i think there was a point where basically any superhero movie with a sufficient level of hype could be guaranteed a certain floor of returns, right? Mm-hmm. That moment has passed. I think yeah. The Flash, Ant-Man 3, very clearly that moment is gone. Um, but like the idea that the entire box office is suffering, we've had a bunch of really interesting, genuine word-of-mouth hits this year. This is another pair of them. Um, and I think the lessons should be more obvious, which is, first off... The studios should just settle these fucking strikes, give SAG and, and the WGA what they want, and then start making shit again. They've got some exciting stuff prepped for the fall. There's no reason they can't do a repeat of this, I think, with Dune Part 2. I'm not even a big fan of Dune Part 1, but like the marketing for Part 2 is very impressive, and people mm-hmm. liked that first movie. That You should be able to do this again with that. And keep making stuff. like. And now they're talking about, well, instead of that, what if we just pull all of our movies for the rest of 2023 and put them to 2024 to try to make the strike last longer? And it's like, you guys are idiots. You have no idea what you're doing. Uh, but it's all sitting there if you want it. And then the movies themselves, I think Barbie is brilliant. I think Greta Gerwig is a phenomenal director, and I think it's a really smart movie that is very fun, very entertaining, wonderfully acted, extremely extremely funny and very fun to see with a crowd amazing sets all of it is these you know big physical sets they built with so much pink paint that there was a shortage apparently in california while they were making this of pink paint which is hilarious um and it's just it's a very clever movie i think it's a very like kind of strident movie in what it has politically to say which is not subtle it is fairly didactic but i also think it's dealing with stuff that it's okay to be didactic about um so i'm good with that and it's it a, it's a Barbie movie. Like yes. it's yeah. it's okay for a Barbie movie to be didactic. It's yes. you know, I mean, obviously like they're they're going for an older audience overall than you know, the the typical Barbie sort of demographic. Yeah. But fundamentally it is like a children's toy property. Yes. You want you need to have some didacticism in there. 
I, I agree. And I've seen some of them being like, the Barbie movie wasn't politically subtle enough is the dumbest critique I think I've ever seen. But yeah. anyway, um, yeah, I think it's a great movie. And I think Greta Gerwig is, uh, has earned every bit of this success she is having. Lady Bird was my number one film of the year. It came out. Little Women was my number four film of the year. She's done this. She is so brilliant. Apparently what's next on deck for her is Netflix has been working for a while on getting a Chronicles of Narnia thing up and running. And they've tapped her to do those movies. And I think that's interesting. That, like, if you try to do Chronicles of Narnia the way Disney did it back in the day, which is just as a Lord of the Rings ripoff, you are doomed for failure. Mm -hmm. That's not what those books are. And that's not what anyone wants out of them. Greta Gerwig is the kind of person I can actually imagine doing the actual C.S. Lewis books, which are like these small, character-focused, very tactile fantasy. Like, I think the talent for production design she's brought to bear on Barbie and Little Women and a lot of the, like, character-focused stuff, I would be actually very interested in that if Netflix would empower her to make something that doesn't look like Lord of the Rings but looks like the actual Narnia stuff. That would be fascinating to me. Yeah, because it's it. Yeah, it shouldn't be the like big epic fantasy series with your Helm's Deep style battle scenes right. and stuff like that. Yeah, it is not really the the point there. Yeah, and I have no idea how they're going to approach that. They've said they're planning to start with two movies that I guess she would work on. I'm very curious if they go back to Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Maybe you start. No one's ever adapted, at least not. I guess there were those old BBC movies that we had to watch in elementary school that are really bad but at least in the modern era no one's done the magician's nephew which is chronologically the first maybe you start there um i i think the ultimate test for me and this is narnia fans will know what i'm talking about is can you successfully adapt the horse and his boy which is a very very slow book about a boy and his horse moving across narnia and nothing really happens that would be the test if you can actually do narnia i say start with that one because if you can pass that test you can do the rest of it but there you go. There's that's the Jonathan yeah. Lack strategy for adapting <laughs> Narnia. My dad was very into those books, so I was very into those books as a kid, and they are very weird. They run against like everything I think Hollywood actually wants out of high fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll see. Anyway, Greta Gerwig rocks. I'm glad she got this success. Oppenheimer left me kind of cold. I think it's an interesting movie in some ways. I you know. With Chris Nolan, you definitely... I said this in my review. There's a floor of quality with his movies. He's a very skilled filmmaker. Mm -hmm. He brings in... And I think more than his skill, he's very good at getting other skilled people to come in and do skilled work. And he's a very good like conductor of talent. And there's a lot of talent on display in Oppenheimer. It is a great game of spot the character actor. Um, because it's just endless over the course of the movie. How many great actors show up in various roles. Uh, you know, Killian Murphy is phenomenal, and, and he's always phenomenal, and, and he's particularly good in Christopher Nolan movies, so I'm glad he finally did a movie where he's the lead, and he's very, very good. Um, I just, the structure of it, it's, it's moving very fast with a lot of dialogue and a lot of exposition, and it's always scored through, and it's just... It's very tiring and heavy, and I think under the surface, it's actually a pretty conventional biopic, which is that it's trying to do way too much about this person, rather than actually queuing in on what would be interesting, which is there's this stretch in the middle of the movie where they do the Trinity test, the first test of an atomic bomb, and then it kind of goes very internal and subjective on Oppenheimer as like the weight of what has happened kind of dawns on him. 
And that stretch is great, and I wish that's what the movie was about. And then the last hour of the movie is about Senate procedures and hearings and all this stuff. And uh, especially after, like, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I don't really care what happened in the Senate uh, and his security clearance and all that. It feels very small. And there's just a lot of stuff like that. So it didn't quite work for me. I understand how it's worked for other people. You know, I do appreciate Christopher Nolan is still able to, you know, divorce studios from great sums of money so he can uh -huh. make weird personal projects. That's great. And I'm glad it's making money because this kind of thing, broadly, there should be more of in the market. This is the kind of movie that has largely stopped being made in America and has instead gone to television mostly. And I think Oppenheimer is a little too long at three hours. I'm very glad there wasn't the 10-hour miniseries version of this, which would have been interminable, which is the alternative these days if, mm -hmm. you know, Chris Nolan isn't directing. So there should be more stuff like this. This just wasn't quite it for me. Yeah, I'm curious, like, how does it deal with the dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Like, what? how does it, like, depict that element of the history there? So, in a couple of different ways. Like, the initial... It's all from Oppenheimer's point of view. So, like, you don't see it fall on Japan. And I think that's the right call. You, He has... Like, once he delivers the bombs, the military basically stops talking to him... And he is basically pacing around Los Alamos waiting for news. And I think it's a very good scene where finally on the radio comes in and Truman is making the announcement that they've dropped the bomb. And he is starting to imagine what has happened. I think that's a very good scene. And like the scene that follows it where everyone is like celebrating him and all he can imagine is like burned skin and everything. Um, I think that's strong. After that point, I just think there's it, – it moves on to other things very quickly my brother Thomas made a good point that it very much conflates Hiroshima and Nagasaki as like one event when it is two distinct events and whatever you think of the atomic bombings I don't understand there being any possible defense of the Nagasaki one mm -hmm. and that's like that's just not really brought up at all I, I will say to the movie's credit it is not parroting the rah-rah jingoist line that we had to do this to end the war. That is something that like generals in the movie say, but it is clearly framed in the movie and through Oppenheimer's reaction as this sounds like bullshit. And later on, it gives voice to the, I, I would say, more accepted historical like belief now that it had nothing to do with actually making Japan and Hiro uh, Japan surrender, but scaring the Soviet Union as the Cold War was started. Yes, so, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, dropping the bomb was not about ending World War II. It was like the opening gambit of the Cold War. Like that yes. was that's what that was completely about. Yeah, that's, and that's what the history bears out. I, people will say it's still up for debate. It's not really up for debate. There are absolute reams of evidence from all sorts of people on the ground who you would think would have been rah-rah about it and weren't. You know, Dwight D. Eisenhower was very vocal, and he would, be, he would know uh, that it was wrong. So anyway, um, yeah. So it, it is at least, I, I think it could be clearer about that position, but it feels to me like the movie works from the assumption that, like, this was a lie. It's just there's not that much about it. There's a moment where Oppenheimer is seeing with a crowd footage from on the ground in the wake of the bombings in Hiroshima. And we see his reaction, but we don't see any of the footage. And I, I understand not wanting to show it. It is, like, it, is a, it is a genuinely tricky thing to you show that kind of imagery. I think in this movie you need to show it. I think you need mm -hmm. to, like, if he is reacting to it, I think we need to react to it. I think it keeps it... I think not showing it ultimately feels to me like 
It is done so you can more easily make Oppenheimer a martyr in the final act of the movie when the U.S. goes after him during the Red Scare. And I think you need to actually see this. This is the most direct fallout of the atomic bomb in history is the one time they were used in war. There have been other things and they they don't deal at all with like all the people around Los Alamos who were killed by the Trinity test, including half the cast of that John Wayne movie, including John Wayne himself. Um, Mm -hmm. The people don't know about developed cancer in the wake of that because it was filming nearby. Um, But anyway, like it, it just feels like they want to be precious about it in a way that avoids having to really encounter the number one most impactful result of these events yeah because that's like you know was always my i mean it's really good to hear that it's not doing the like oh well it's 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 terrible but you know the the 24 ish like oh we just had to get our hands dirty bullshit um which is the thing that you know america likes to tell itself over and over again but yeah i mean it's it's just a thing where like the weight of the the evil of the nuclear bomb is so tremendous that it's like it's hard for me to imagine being able to watch the movie um in the same way that it's like it's you know it's it's a similar sort of thing to like in the other like world war ii movies the context of like the holocaust is such like tremendous there's so much tremendous gravity to the evil of that that it's like when you're when you when you poke it at all like how do you deal with that like how do you address it just because it's like you know the the shockwaves of what that nuclear bomb did to those people in that community and that country and the whole world is so horrible and like irreparable and it changed everything forever um and i I can see as you're saying earlier that like when you get to the senate hearings you you kind of stop caring about the red scare and the security clearance and like you know, the way that, you know, America, it is, I think, an interesting piece of history, the way that America sort of like chewed Robert Oppenheimer up and then spit him back out the other end and just kind of didn't give a shit about it. Um, well, they after. and they chewed him up until the point that he saw the damage of what he'd done and started like arguing for arms yeah. control and saying, don't do the hydrogen bomb. Like to his real credit in the real world, he spent the rest of his life, you know, genuinely like politically agitating against this thing. And that is an interesting story. But it does kind of pale in comparison to the thing that happened. Yeah. And it's like, it's something that I think when you dramatize it, it's like, right, like it's fine for a documentary about Oppenheimer. Right. It's like, it's hard for me to imagine being able to dramatize it and avoid, and like, how do you solve that problem of how much more weight dropping the bombs has than what happened with Oppenheimer's life after that point? Like, that's interesting history, but does it like narratively stack up? with the other material you've already kind of broached. So that's always, that was kind of my curious thing I was about this movie based on the trailers and stuff. The most frustrating moment for the, in the entire movie for me is, um, the, the sort of secondary plot line, all the black and white stuff surrounds, uh, a character played by Robert Downey Jr. Played, uh, named Louis Strauss, real mm-hmm. person who, um, was basically the orchestrator of the, um, you know, shaming of Robert Oppenheimer during the the Red Scare, and they they especially in the final act just completely turn him into a cartoon villain. And I think, and I don't know, maybe that's accurate to who Louis Strauss was. But like, here's one problem with making cartoon villains is that it makes the person opposite them look like a cartoon hero, which is what happens to Oppenheimer for a little bit of this movie. Uh, but more importantly, there's this scene where he is where the Downey Jr. character, and I should say Robert Downey Jr. is extraordinary in this movie. He's so good, and it is so cool to see him in a 
not superhero thing again and he's mm-hmm. great as Iron Man I love that it's just we haven't seen him in like something else in a while and it's cool to see him here um, but there's this scene where he very frustratedly says like you guys don't understand Oppenheimer's martyrdom he wants to be remembered for Trinity and he wants you all to forget that he is also responsible for Hiroshima and Nagasaki and I'm not letting that happen and I went that's the point of the movie that should be uh-huh. your thesis of the fucking movie that's brilliant and the point of the scene is he's wrong and he's the bad guy and like I think Downey Jr. is even playing it with a level of conviction that if you framed the movie like two degrees differently, I think the whole movie comes together for me. Because that's a really interesting thesis on Oppenheimer as a person and his life and work. Uh, and, and the movie is like, no, no, that's what the smarmy comic book villain is saying. And I think that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, I mean, it's such a complicated thing to grapple with, you know, like Oppenheimer's culpability and then what he does afterwards um you know because it's like oppenheimer this is the reason why i think it's a very attractive figure to make a movie about is because he's like so complicated you know i mean he was a communist um which obviously was not uh, politically viable after uh world war ii i mean even during world war ii it was a pretty dicey position um he's someone who who you know as with a lot of people like legitimately believed that trying to build the bomb was the right thing to do because of, or like in the early stages of that development, it was a fear that the Nazis would be developing it as well. By the time you get to, we've actually got nuclear bombs, that's not a concern anymore. Um, so it's like... Because Hitler know, that, is dead. Yes, that, yeah. that excuse goes way out the window at a certain point, but in the early, like, we're sort of figuring this out sort of stage and whether or not this is possible, um, you know, like, yeah, like Einstein was someone who recommended we should. this is a thing we should be pursuing. He didn't actually then follow through on that because Einstein was a more moral person. Um, but it, but like in the early stages of the war, the idea of Nazi Germany having a nuclear bomb, that's a fucking terrifying prospect. So there's like, there's some nuance there, but yeah, by the time you get to, we actually are doing the tests. We actually like have like made a viable nuclear bomb. And then now we're going to drop two of them on Japan. Like there is no complicating moral factors there. It is only like disgusting base human hatred and, ambition that is driving that whole machine at that point um and dropping two nuclear bombs on two human like civilian cities um it's you know it's just it's so evil and gross that it's like that's that's the thing i struggle with just conceptually this it's one of the things that's kind of kept me from watching the movie is i just don't feel like i would be able to enjoy it because it's too heavy shit that I don't really want to see Christopher Nolan's take on personally even if it's probably a very well made film well and and like honestly that's kind of how I felt going in Sean and I think if I hadn't had plans to review it I don't think I would have seen it at all it's it's just it's not that interesting to me because of some of these same issues you know I will say I, I didn't care for it I don't think it is like so morally objectionable that I would say, you know, don't see it. I think if you're interested in it, go see it. It's interesting to grapple with. It is an interesting movie. Um, it did not really land for me, but I don't hate it. Uh, and I, I kind of expected I might hate this one, and I didn't. So that's nice. Barbie is the better movie. You should go see Barbie. If you can find a showtime with free seats, which is kind of hard right now, because that movie's like sold out everywhere. But yeah, Barbie has no nuclear bombs in it, just so everyone knows. Oh, that's disappointing. It has Ryan Gosling shirtless. That's that's got the force of a nuclear bomb. That joke's yeah, in bad taste. They should have put that on <laughs> on the poster. If they, it is funny how much the Barbenheimer thing became a phenomenon without either studio leaning into it, 
and doing like stupid marketing around it. There was like Greta Gerwig and Christopher Nolan jointly saying, go see each other's movies to be nice. But other than that, they didn't have like, they, they didn't have like a scene where like Ken is like writing the fucking H-bomb down from the sky like in Doctor Strangelove, which would have been very funny. Yes, although that that would have been an extremely poor taste. <laughs> yes, it would have been. Yes, it would have been. All right. Anyway, that's what I've been up to, Sean. What have you been up to? Uh, Final Fantasy sixteen. That's that's just basically it. I've, <laughs> I'm I'm very close to finishing that game. I'm, I'm basically at the point where it does the video game thing where it says, "Hey, if you go do this thing, the game's going to end." So if they're you know if you want to do all the other stuff, now would be a good time to do it. So I'm doing all the other stuff. Um, I think I've got maybe about four side missions left so i'll probably end up finishing this game tonight um i just got last night i got the sword that must be the most powerful sword in the game because you get a trophy specifically for when you make it so i was like okay that seems like that must be the one um and it's a pretty cool sword but yeah i'm just having a great time with that game i love final fantasy 16 to death it is such a big fun goofy game like there's there's something about the like kind of blend of the game of thronesy elements there but it is so at its core a jrpg um and it, and it wears the that like early on you know it's pretty early in the game that you see the pathway it's going to get to and you're fighting god at the end of the game um that's not a thing that the game is like it's like a twist that is going to go to that subject um but i just love the game's whole sort of sense of itself um, its characters, the community that you build with all those characters at the core of the story is incredibly fun and endearing. Um, that, again, reminds me so much of Tales of Arise. Like, those two games are like a cool double feature because they're both JRPGs, like, using metaphor and symbolism um, to tackle very similar topics and have very, I think, similar takes on, like... Uh, capitalism and oppression in in like materialism and these kinds of things that are chewing up and destroying our world and um our people and that's like very much what both those games are about in very jrpg ways that's very fun um and then the combat is fantastic at this point i have all the different akon move sets unlocked and one of the things the kind of genius things about the game is that they make it completely free to respec your character um, which is the thing that games are doing more frequently these days, but lots of games like Diablo four does this as well. It doesn't make it totally free, but it makes it cheap enough that it's like viable to respect your character. But the problem is respecting your character in Diablo four is like such a huge deal because then it's like, I have to rethink all of my gear and grind for different gear and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and those skill trees are much more complex. So even though I could have, I never really did respect in any major way, when I played Diablo 4, I just kind of adjusted my character build a little bit here and there. Whereas with Final Fantasy 16, because it's such an action-focused game, it's much more like when I unlock a new Akon, I go, I basically reset most of my skills and then or totally rethink, okay, well, now that I have this one, because, um, you know, the way they synergize together, sometimes you have a skill set that maybe at the time, like for me, it was Ramu, the lightning one, I didn't love so much at first. And then some of the later ones I unlocked made me think, oh, wait, I could use this skill in, like, synergy with this other skill, and this would kind of work really well. And so I've changed up the way I play the game pretty completely about four or five times at this point. And I'm, what's really fun is at this point, the build I have right now, I kind of don't even use normal attacks anymore. Like, every once in a while, I need to do, like, a normal combo to kind of fill a little bit of a gap in my attack strings. And, it's, and it feels nostalgic of, like, oh, right, I can just, like... 
hit people with my sword and shoot a fireball. That's a thing you do sometimes because there's so much other shit going on in the combat at the point where I'm at with the character build I'm using. And that's very fun. Um, And it is very fun to try to like just maximize your damage and figure out the most efficient ways to kill the giant monsters on like the hunt submissions and stuff like that. So yeah, I'll probably end up finishing the game tonight or tomorrow. um, But I'm still really loving Final Fantasy 16. It still gets two thumbs up for me. I have a question about the respecking because here's the thing. Yes. The way I've been playing it, so I'm up, I have Ramu, so I have those three, but I just have enough points to unlock everything. Like, is there more, like, there's that center circle. Does that ever change? Or is that just... No. But one thing that starts to happen, so you can have, right, once you get Ramu, you see you can have three of those sets at the same time, right, that you're flipping between. Eventually, when you get enough of them, what gets very expensive on the skill tree is upgrading so each of those skills has like three different levels of upgrade or whatever it's like your basic one that you just unlock it then you can buy an upgraded version of it which just gives it additional powers um i didn't even know that so yes so you can go back in and if you press i think triangle on them it will show you what the upgrade does and then there's a third upgrade called mastery and what mastery does is it allows you to put that skill on a different acon so like say you want to have the phoenix dash but you also want to be able to use one of Ramu's abilities and put it in that slot because you don't want to have Ramu's sort of the circle move. Um, You can then unlock, like spend a lot of extra points to get one of those and put it on the Phoenix set. So at this point, I have two or three abilities that aren't even associated with the actual Akons because I want their circle skill, but there's something about one of these other abilities that I also want to use in my build, and getting that mastery is very expensive. But yes, you can go back in and and look, and you can upgrade those abilities. Um, And so that might be why you may have a little bit extra points right now if you've not been doing that. Okay. This game is actually very good at tutorializing things. I must have just missed that at some point, so who knows. But yeah, I'm I'm loving it too. I am past the second time jump to keep it vague, mm-hmm. uh, and it is extraordinary. I'm loving it. I want to go play more right now. Uh, again, I think we will do a big Final Fantasy 16 podcast at some point once I'm done with it as well. But it is uh, it's absolutely a blast and just so fucking polished. Like that's the thing. Yes. I got to the point after the second time jump. You get this person at your hideout who you go and talk to and they can just bring you bring up these two big elaborate like interactive maps that mm-hmm. show you the relations between all the characters over time because this game takes place over many number of years. I actually think the better comparison people have been comparing it to Game of Thrones, it's actually a little bit more like House of the Dragon, the spin-off show which also has these big leaps in time, which is very much like what Final Fantasy 16 does. And you can trace over time all these changing relationships, then there's a separate map for like the nations of the world and the changing political situation. This should be like just standard required for every high fantasy game or anything like this from here on out. I've been thinking so much about like how much better received would Final Fantasy 13 have been if it had the system where you could just hold down the middle button and bring up a guide and go, okay, what's the difference between a Falsy and a Pulse um, I need to know. I need to be reminded of this. Because I'll be honest, there's a lot of proper nouns in Final Fantasy 16, and there have been times where I go, what's the difference between those two things? And I'm like, oh, I can just hold down the touchpad and it will tell me. That's nice. Other games have needed this very badly in the past, and and uh, more games in the future will need it, and I hope they learn from this. I, I assume it takes a good deal of extra work on the side, but it is so worth it. It's so cool. 
Yeah, it's a good point that, like, the game does feel so tremendously polished. Like, there's just all these little extra pieces here and there in the edges of the game that feel like something that you would see in, like, the game of the year version with, like, a year worth of patches and stuff like that. Um, but it's all here from the jump. Um, like, little tiny things that I love, like the way it handles the side quests on the menu is so good, particularly once you get deeper in the game and you have access to a lot more of them, uh, where you can track three different side quests at a time. And then on the side, it'll have like this, where you're kind of on the side of the screen where it tells you your quest objectives. It'll have the three ones that are the ones you're tracking. It'll have a little Roman numeral next to them, one, two, and three. Then when you look at the world map, it will show you where those are with those little Roman, Roman numerals next to them. Um, and whenever you get a new side quest, uh, you can hold down triangle when the side quest thing pops up to like prioritize the quest and put it in at number one of that list of three. So it just makes it extremely easy to keep track of which quests am I following? Do, oh, I just got a new one and this one's really interesting. I want to make sure this is on my my track list. And then I can go look at the map and at a glance know exactly which one of those icons is which one of my three quests. It's so well organized and constructed in that way. Um, and there's like a guy at your home base who just like his only function is he just lists what all the side quests that are available right now are. And so you can just look at those and take a glance and be like, okay, in this region, there's like three side quests. Maybe I want to go there. And it's just very plain and easy to see. And if you click on them, he'll just like teleport you to the relevant zone. So you can go to that side quest very quickly. Um, there's shit like that all over the game that is just like extremely well thought through and i think the biggest one is everything to do with the codex side of the game and, and how it delivers the backstory and like the world building and the setting and all that in a way that's just like very accessible like if you go to uh harpocritus the like codex man basically uh and you go through and if you start like digging through those codex things they pop up in little windows and then at the bottom they've got these little tabs that so if you're like looking at one character it'll have other rel like related tabs that'll be like oh well here's the nation that that character is from and here's like oh this is like the acon that they are so like the summoned beast that if you know here's like you know, Bahamut or something. Oh, and here's this other character you saw in a cutscene that you know is closely related to this one. And it'll give you four or five of those tabs and you can click through them and it starts putting the windows on top of each other. So if you like are reading through one of those related tabs and you're like, oh wait, how does this connect to the thing I was just reading about the other guy? If you just press circle, it will close out that tab and it'll be back on the previous one. Like the logic and flow of that menu is so smooth and so well thought through. It is incredible to me. Like it is, it, it's like so much better than these kinds of codex things ever are in games where they're usually so incredibly cumbersome that I tend not to even go to them or use them because it's just such a hassle to engage with. And Sony games have those mechanics and that system in there. It's just so hard to use and you don't want to go out of your way to do it. Whereas like I always have a very fun time going back and being like, let me go talk to Harpocrates and like spend a little time looking at the map thinking through the characters, trying to make connections, and just kind of understanding the history of the world. Um, that side of the game is incredibly fun. It is, it is something I really hope other RPGs take from this game and think about, okay, how can we fill in those kind of the edges of the experience to give players the ability to dig deeper into this stuff in a way that feels really inviting and accessible? Uh, because Final Fantasy XVI has like totally cracked that nut. 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, one thing we know from the development of this game is that it was done, essentially, like playable start to finish around this time last year. Mm-hmm. And the last year of development was all this stuff, along with some things like voice recording in multiple languages and, and bug polish and whatnot. But like, you can feel that. It definitely feels like there probably was a version of this they could have released, you know, 10 months ago that would have been a very bare bones kind of not quite there 1.0 release and you would have been like all right and then over time they would have added stuff to it until it felt pretty finished like i've never gone back and replayed final fantasy 15 with the absolute mountain of patches and dlc it had but it probably feels substantially more polished than the game we Mm -hmm. played at launch uh but most people will never experience that because that's most people play games when they come out uh and so it is cool as you say to have a game that just feels like this is the game of the year edition of it or something. Uh, you know, Tears of the Kingdom was the same way. Another game that also just had a full year of polish at the end of its development cycle. And uh, I love it when that is possible because it makes for something that feels like you're getting your money's worth out of it. Definitely. Yeah, it, it just feels a little bit old school, right? Like there's so many things we've just kind of like accepted, get shaved off of games and then added back on later with patches, which is, you know, fine. I mean, you know, game development is really hard. I understand, you know, that... Hey, New Game Plus, for instance, is a thing that often gets like sort of shelved for we'll put that in the game later. And I know that Final Fantasy, I haven't beaten the game yet, but I know the game has a New Game Plus mode um, at launch, um, which is obviously, you know, Capcom has been doing a good job of that as well, of like keeping that in as a like for launch feature of the game, which is rad because, you know, particularly like the Sony first party games typically always end up with a new game plus mode but they usually don't have one at launch um and like the witcher 3 was one of the first ones i remember doing that of where they added like a year after that game's release what the new game plus mode was um and it's you know it's an extra little feature it's a thing that most of the players are not going to use um but that kind of stuff is nice to have at launch and just feel like you do have this big complete package which feels more like you know games from the xbox ps2 generation when those features were pretty standard and obviously there was no option to have them come on later. It's like either you had New Game Plus at launch or there was never going to be a New Game Plus mode in your game. Um, and it's just nice to have like all that stuff here and have it feel like a very complete game. Also, one last little thing that I think we somehow have not mentioned across our various conversations. This is the first PS5 game in a while that it just fully you feel the, oh, it has no loading times. Yes. It just doesn't have them. It just... You just play it. It's just, it literally, there is no load screen. It's just if you want to travel to a completely different environment that in your your muscle memory is I'm going to need to put my controller down for two or three minutes. It's like fade to black, fade back up. And it is so elegant. It's exactly like Demon's Souls uh, in that way or some of the like games that came out at the launch of the PS5 that just were wowing us with the just complete absence of load times. The slickest thing in the entire fucking game, I think, is that if you were playing a different game on your PS5 and you want to go back to Final Fantasy 16, and I've been doing this a lot because I'm still playing mm-hmm. Street Fighter, uh, you just click on, when you select the game, there's an option below to say just continue game. And it just skips all of the title screen, all of the logos, anything, and just dr- drops you right back where you were. Uh, as though you had... It, it's very much like the suspend feature, almost, on, like, uh, the Xbox. Except, honestly, it is faster getting back into your game through that than using the suspend feature on Xbox. It's mm-hmm. insane. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't break, which is when I was using right. my Series S, like, every game I used, that didn't work for it because those games had online connections. And then it's like oh, now it's going to kick you back out to the main menu. Yeah, like all that experience is so seamless. Um, and it uses the controller very well also. 
Um, there's a lot of good stuff. Like I don't, th- you probably haven't unlocked the chocobo yet, but once you can ride a chocobo, it you uses... can ride a chocobo. Okay, yes. it had. I've played enough of the game that I just assumed you would never get to ride one. So I'm so yes. excited. One thing, but it is something you could miss if you don't do the side quests. One thing that people should know, um, and for you, Jonathan, make sure you do this when you get side quests that have a plus sign instead of an exclamation mark as their symbol. You should do the plus sign ones because the plus sign ones always unlock some kind of like really meaningful okay. upgrade um and the chocobo is one of those and there are some other things that like they kind of distinguish okay this is like a side quest you really want to do for like practical reasons because it's not just going to be some gill and experience you get you're going to get like a player upgrade that's really important um and so yeah you probably you might be able to do the chocobo quest now if not pretty soon but it uses the um, adaptive triggers really well so when you accelerate or break on your chocobo um it uses that and that's like a very satisfying feeling um but yeah like the loading thing is is awesome it is a, another game that feels like we just need to fully move to the loading screen like imagery is gone like we just need to get rid of that um and because we've had like a couple years now where a lot of games still cling on to that even for their ps5 xbox series versions because they use their cross-gen game so it has it on the ps4 version anyways um but it's like it even if the load time is the exact same, there's something much more elegant and satisfying about the fade to black, fade back in, than getting this, like, brief flash of, here's a little, like, piece of concept art with, like, a three-sentence-long tip on it you're never going to be able to read, and then, like, it just sort of appears on screen and then disappears really fast, and it's kind of jarring, and it feels broken, almost. Um, it's just so much more elegant and fits with the presentation when you just fade away, or, like, Demon Souls did the thing where it had, like, fog come on the screen and the fog recedes away. Um, that kind of thing is, like, really cool and makes use of that loading feature especially because the way that Final Fantasy 16 is structured it's not one big seamless open world or anything it's a lot of different kind of zones that you're going to so you end up fast traveling a lot more than you would in a more traditional open world game so if this game was like a PS4 version and you had a minute long load every time you were going to a different region that would fucking be awful like I would if that was the case I wouldn't be doing the all the side quests I'm doing right now right. because it would just add so much dead time onto that but one thing that's fun about doing the side quests is it's just so fast and snappy to get to where you're trying to go go talk to the dude get onto your quest fight the monsters be like oh that was awesome where do I go next oh this other place that's like all the way on the other side of the world well great I can be there in like five seconds and start getting into the shit and you're not sitting there waiting through huge loads every single time and it really is a game changer for the structure of a game like this I agree and and you were saying like oh don't skip this side quest Jonathan and I'm like well I've done every single one the game mm-hmm. has given me so far so I haven't skipped anything but and part of it is exactly what you're talking about it is the there is just no loads and like I'm still having to readjust myself where my muscle memory is when I get on that big map and I select something I grab my phone Mm -hmm. for the three minutes I'm going to go spend on Twitter or whatever well not Twitter so much anymore I don't know Instagram whatever I'm using these days um while I'm waiting for the fucking load to happen right and uh you don't have to do that anymore and I think like developers are also still going through this it's exactly as you Mm -hmm. say with like load screens we're like the technology is there. There's no friction there anymore. It is now just purely, can we as game designers and game players wrap our heads around a world without loading? 
and can we implement that into the games? Because you're right. I think 16 actually feels like a game that has wrapped its head around that. I think its structure, it feels freed to do because it is essentially a cartridge-based kind of thing with no loads. And it feels like a game from the Super NES or something on that level. Not visually, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, more of this, please. I love it. Yeah, it's it's a very satisfying game. It, it does just feel like... It's it's the first game, we talked about this last week, it's the first game in a long time that feels like, okay, we're moving out of that cross-gen period and we're now getting into, you know, like I'm sure Spider-Man 2 in October is going to feel the same way. It's like, okay, yes, we are now, we are making games for these consoles and that feels good because it has been a long, you know, and I understand all the reasons for why it has been long and drawn out, but it has been very long and drawn out. Um, it, it, It's nice to be moving past that point. Absolutely. I have one other game to be talking about uh, that I've, or th- to talk about that I've been playing, yeah. which is also a Final Fantasy game. This was on sale this week, and I've been waiting for it to go on sale. I got Theatrhythm Final Bar Line uh-huh. for the Switch. I think it's also on PlayStation and Xbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it is. it is the yeah, and I had to, I had to think about it because this series, for those who don't know, it's the Final Fantasy rhythm game. It was a 3DS exclusive for a while. It started on the 3DS, and it was over there. So I think this one is the first one that's on, like, Sony and Xbox and everything. But it is everywhere. Um, It's also ridiculously good. It is, like... Because I played one of the earlier 3DS ones, and this is, like, such a feature-rich game. Uh, For those who haven't played these, they're not quite like, you know, your Hatsune Miku, Miku or Persona Dancing All Night Rhythm games where, like, everything is super bespoke and there's a big dance and music video for everything. Um... There couldn't be. There are 400 songs in uh-huh. this game. Because what it is doing is it's just using the tracks from the various games. And there are some new ones as well scattered through. And then the whole sort of visual system and everything is sort of shared among pieces of the game. There are bespoke visuals for different parts. But basically, it is like a rhythm game RPG where you're going through the levels and fighting monsters and stuff. But just purely by doing the rhythm game part of it. Uh, but with the added advantage of it's all the Final Fantasy music you could ever want. Which is awesome because Final Fantasy has a claim to make to the best, you know, video game music of all time. I think there's no real answer to that question, but it is up there on the Mount Rushmore of great Mm -hmm. video game music, right? Uh, So, you know, and it's very feature-rich. It's got a separate musical campaign for all of the mainline numbered entries uh, up through 15. 16 is not in there yet, but I assume they'll do DLC. And then you've got a bunch of others. You've got Crisis Core. You've got... The 13 sequels, you've got Type Zero, you've got... Uh, there was at least a couple in there, Sean, that I had never heard of. And I I think I know most of the Final Fantasy stuff until I look at the list here and I'm like, I don't know what that was. There was a fucking Final Fantasy VII thing I had to look up and I'm like, oh, this is the music from the OVA that was released in 2002 and then this music was put in Crisis Core because I thought it was a Crisis Core track, but they didn't say it was and I was confused. So it's very rich on that level. The rhythm game, like, it has, I think, a very high similarity with something like Hatsune Miku but it is a a little simplified but I really like it it's very tactile it's very just fun to play through the levels it's very addictive one thing I like versus some other rhythm games is that the tracks just they're a little shorter they're they're not every song is kind of a big event so it's much more kind of pick up and play bite-sized you know run through these different areas and that's very fun like you can sit down and just do one of the game campaigns start to finish in half an hour 45 minutes and just go i'm gonna do all the tracks from final fantasy one in here and it's it's super cool and if if people want a final fantasy rhythm game this is like so feature rich on what that sort of thing should be and i'm having a blast with it in between playing final fantasy 16 
Yeah, which unfortunately, obviously, there's no Final Fantasy 16 music in there, right? Because it's it's yeah. that's too reasonable. It came out before 16. This this yes. launched in like March, but there's a bunch of DLC for stuff like Near Automata and whatnot. So I assume they'll add 16 music. Yeah, because I was going to say that because I'm looking up uh, it up on Wikipedia because I thought this was the case. But yeah, there is music from non Final Fantasy um, games as well. There's music from Live Alive, The World Ends with You, Octopath Traveler, Near Xenogears, and Chrono, the Chrono series and the Mana series, is what Wikipedia says. As we say, Jonathan, I think there's added even more with DLC. I also noticed that um, in, on platforms, it is on PlayStation 4, which I know because I saw it's on sale right now on PS4. I might pick this up. Um, I also, I did just buy um, Octopath Traveler 2 because that was also on sale. So I don't know nice. if I'll, I'll, because I'll probably just move on to that. So I don't know if I'll really pick this up because I'm not going to have time for it. Um, but it's not on Xbox, unfortunately. This is another... Um, the Square Enix and Xbox have a complicated relationship. And it's, there's not a lot coming out there. Um, so if I don't know if it's that this. complicated a relationship. Yeah. It, their stuff doesn't sell there. That's why. <laughs> I'm yes. sorry. Uh, uh, they've, they've tried. They've given it the old college try. All the Final Fantasy 13s came out there in compromised form. 15 was there. I just, no one... Yeah. yeah, especially in Japan, they're a Japanese company. I'm sorry, that's just not where the sales are. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I believe that 15 sold less than 10 percent of its copies on the Xbox. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's yeah, it's unfortunate for people who want to play these games and all they have is an Xbox. Um, that's going to be a no go. Hopefully, it at least comes out on PC at some point. That'd be a nice platform to, to, for it to come out on because I can imagine people would crack that open and be able to mod in all kinds of weird other songs if they wanted, but. Right now, PlayStation 4 and Nintendo Switch is where you got to go for your theatrism, theater rhythm. How are the fuck you're supposed to say that? It's I see say theatrhythm, but I don't know. I don't think there's any definitive pronunciation because it's a made-up word. Yes. Um, hold on. Let me see if I can get to a page here that has a Japanese... Oh, the uh, katakana would tell us, wouldn't it? Yeah. If it, it has it's, kata- it's, it's theaterism because it's shiatorism. So it's theaterism seems to be the, probably the best way to pronounce it. Okay, because the R is just shared between the two words, and that's yes. confusing. Theater rhythm, Final Fantasy. Okay, that makes more sense. Uh, yeah, Shiatorismu. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, this one, I do think it's funny, though. This game does not have the word fantasy in it. It's just theater rhythm, final bar line. So, like, if you search Final Fantasy in the store, it won't come up. <laughs> oh, I didn't did think about that, but yes, that is that is funny. Yes. But anyway, I and I will probably get some of that DLC at some point because the near music would be particularly fun mm-hmm. to have in here. But anyway, I am glad that exists. And I kind of, you know, I definitely like the chibi characters and some of the levels look sort of cheap and silly. But at the same time, 400 songs. I'm very happy just like it's it's kind of cool to just have the here it is. Here it's all in one go. Just have at it. Uh, and I am enjoying that because one of my favorite things about 16 is just the way it uses all the classic Final Fantasy music throughout. Uh-huh. And it makes me want to go play it in this game. It's just a nice little reward cycle. So there you go. Yeah, the the main menu or not uh, the map music on Final Fantasy sixteen, which is a, like an interpretation of the play, prelude with the um, arpeggio, the very famous Final Fantasy arpeggio, is so good. Uh, yes. I, that's that's like kind of like with uh, Street Fighter. That's just a game where you sometimes you just want to hang out on that menu for a little bit and just appreciate the music before you go somewhere. Absolutely. All right. Anything else before we jump over to the new Ultraman? No, I think that's it for me. Let's 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 you know hit our beta capsules and talk about <laughs> Ultraman, Jonathan. Before we talk about the content of the movie itself, 
I want to talk about trying to watch this fucking movie. <laughs> yes. So, yes. Okay. The reason we decided to do this now is we were just waiting for the Blu-ray to come out because we are old men who enjoy our physical media. It's nice and easy. It looks good. We're fine. And it, it was coming out July 21st from this company. Uh, uh, Cleopatra is the releasing label. And we're like, great. Get the Blu-ray in. I didn't check. I didn't spot check it because I assumed adults put this together. Uh, and then last night, Saturday night, we're recording Sunday. I sat down to watch Sheen Ultraman and discovered it is a Blu-ray of a Japanese movie with no subtitles for the Japanese version. It has closed captions for the English version, which means there's also all of the, like, person screams here stuff. Uh, But it's not just that there's closed captions. They are in the wrong spot on the screen, in between the image and the black bars, which is wrong. It's just, there's no logic behind that at all. Uh, And then there are a bunch of formatting errors and none of the on-screen text is subtitled. And if you're thinking, I saw Shin Godzilla, that had a lot of on-screen text. Is there a lot of on-screen text in Shin Ultraman? Yes, yes there is. And even if you're watching the English dub, none of it is subtitled for you on this disc. And I have a, a, a you know baseline of some Japanese knowledge. I can't read that fucking fast. I needed the subtitles for this movie. So I took the fucking disc out, and I went to my, my computer, and I sailed the high seas, and I had to find something else. What the fuck? How does that happen in the year 2023 that you put out a movie of a Japanese film and just don't do subtitles? Yeah, it's so I I just ended up watching through with the Blu-ray because so I was watching it with my dad last night because we're what we're I, when I watch the Ultraman stuff I watch it with him um, and I did have to pause like three or four times at the beginning of the movie and, uh, and explain to my dad what's going on. Um, oh god! And, and it's like you know for it doesn't have as much of the on-screen text as Shin Godzilla. It's mostly focused at the very beginning. There is one moment where there is a visual joke. Um, that is entirely delivered via on-screen text where uh, one of the ladies like has put together a report on Ultraman and she says, here's everything we know about him and throws it on the table that it just is a close-up to the text that says identity unknown. And that's the entire yes. report. And that is a joke that obviously will not land if you <laughs> don't, can't read that. So I had to pause there and explain that to my dad too. Um, and, you know, and, and for my purposes, I know I can understand Japanese well enough that like I didn't really need the subtitles. Um, so it, it didn't bother me that much. Uh, but 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 that's because I know the language. So it's like that's right. that's not a you're excuse. cheating at that point. That's yeah, not that's, it's not for you. Like I might at, at some point for me personally, obviously not for being able to watch it with my dad. But for me personally, I could have just aborted the Japanese Blu-ray and had a, honestly a better experience. I, it would have been better for me to watch this with Japanese subtitles than to have watched it with the English subtitles. Uh, it is. Yeah, it is a it is without a doubt, by a really substantial margin, the worst official release of everything, if anything, I have ever seen in terms of that stuff. Um, it is, it's terrible because, as you say, it's the subtitle placement is in the wrong spot, um, which is distracting. The subtitle font is smaller than it should be, um, and the amount of text they have in there is less than it should be. So it moves through text way too quickly. Um, because it's just little like phrases, um, instead of giving you at least like a complete sentence most of the time. And that's really bad. Um, as I say, like it's, it is very distracting that it's just the closed captions thing. And so you're just constantly getting text on there that says monster growls, loud stomping, which is like, great. (laughs) Thanks. Um, thanks for scrolling off the, uh, subtitle text that I need to see because it's not capable of displaying 
two text lines at the same time. So if a monster stomps when a character was saying something, I hope you finished reading what they were saying because that text is gone now so that you now know that a monster was stomping. Um, which even if clear, you're hard of hearing, uh, that's not going to help you. You know, yeah. that like get fucked if you're deaf because you're not going to be able to understand the movie either. Yeah, to be clear, Blu-rays are perfectly capable of displaying as many subtitle lines as you want. Yes. The people who put this together didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And then all the formatting is broken, um, which is very noticeable whenever there is something that's meant to be italicized, which is quite a lot of text at certain points in the movie, because there's lots of, like, soldiers talking on the radio. Basically, almost any time that Zafi says anything, they were they wanted to have it italicized, I guess, because he's got this weird kind of spectral voice. Um but that means that instead of having the text italicized, you have the like bracket I slash close bracket at the beginning and end of all of those lines, um, which is incredibly distracting. It looks awful. It is something where it's like where that's just a mistake. Like that's not um, we didn't know the best way to format subtitles. You know, I mean, there's no real excuse for a professional release on we put it in the wrong spot and all that kind of shit. They should know better. But if you don't know better, I mean, you're not going to know any better. You know better than you know that it's not supposed to be bracket I slash bracket. You know that that's not what it's supposed yes. to be. That's just like you didn't spot check the fucking thing before you printed the discs, I guess. Like, how the fuck does that get through is insane to me. Um, it's It's like even the worst fan subs i've seen um which would might maybe occasionally have a formatting error in the the subtitles it would be like oh here's one line where they did it wrong and they didn't realize it's not literally every single time there's supposed to be a piece of italicized text on the screen you have the bracket format up there um that's like shockingly incompetent it means there was no quality check it means nobody checked the disc before they printed it which is amazing uh Here's the thing, though, Sean. My adventure didn't end there because I have to tell you the rest of the story of how I finally was able to watch Sheen Ultraman because it's a comedy of errors, most Uh of which has nothing to do with the movie. It's just other shit that happened as I was trying to download it. So I started – I sat down to watch that Blu-ray at 8.30 p.m. I didn't really start the movie until 10 p.m. Uh (laughs) I had a journey. So Blu-ray sucks. Not going to work for me. So I went to get uh, a torrent. I just f- went for the like nicest 4K, whatever had the most seeds, download my torrent. Good. Take my computer, my laptop out to the TV room, plug it in. All right. Movies here. Subtitles are good. Let's play. Oh, fuck. This is a 4K torrent with HDR and it's not showing up right on the TV. Uh, and in addition to that, my TV and my Mac, I don't know why this... This is definitely the TV's fault, because my Mac works with every other monitor I use. I teach with my Mac. I bring it to school, all this stuff. But with my TV, it sometimes doesn't do the frame rate right, and video will stutter, and I don't know why. It is Again, it's not my Mac. It's the TV. Whatever's going on. I was having that and the HDR issue, so I'm like, fuck. So I'm like, uh, I have Plex. I have Plex on my PS5. Let's do that. Uh, I'm like, let's play this over Plex. Uh-oh, Plex doesn't like HDR. Uh, it doesn't want to play it because it's in H... Oh, fuck. Okay, let's go get a second torrent. Let's see if we can find a torrent with no HDR on it. Uh, okay, this one says it's 4K, but it says it's not HDR. I tried to do a 1080p torrent. No seeds. Couldn't get it. Okay, we'll try this one. Fuck. Also has HDR. Won't play. All the same problems. 
So I, at this point, I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. And I'm like, I'm looking through, and I'm like, where'd they get the subtitles from? This is, is this a fan sub? No, they got these subtitles from uh, one of the rental services. Okay, this movie is on digital rental. I'll just rent it digitally. And so I went to the first app that had it. It was YouTube. And I went, that's fine. I got, YouTube has my payment information. This is easy. I can do this. Uh, rented it on YouTube. It did have the proper subtitles. But I, this is how I watched the movie, but it drove me absolutely crazy. The subtitles had ADHD because they jumped all over the screen. They weren't oh, just geez. at the bottom in the center. They would go center, and then they would go justified to the left for the next line. And then they would go up justified to the left. And then they would go center, and they would like rotate around the screen with every line. I have absolutely no idea why youtube actually has a bunch of options for formatting your captions so i was able to make them look nicer because they initially came up as the giant like black boxes obscuring the screen Uh and i was able to make it just normal translucent text but i couldn't fix the placement it drove me insane but i did finally at least i can at least watch the movie but then i'm like this doesn't look very good and i check i paid for hd hd on a youtube rental is apparently 720p not even 1080, not 4K. It's compressed to shit. It looked like someone... Is it like 2005? Like, what if you needed no, 720p? That's fucked up. It honestly looked like someone had illegally uploaded the movie to YouTube. That's the thing I paid for. That's what it looked like, especially with the fucking crazy schizophrenic subtitles. Uh, I, I made it through. I want to see the movie again in better quality when I have more time to get it right. Uh, because it's a great movie, and the problem was whenever there was any significant motion on screen, just macro blocking galore. Mm-hmm. And hey, there's a lot of motion in this movie when things yeah, get going. I, I, I imagine that you two probably is not a big fan of like some of the psychedelic background stuff at the no. end uh, with Ultraman and Zoffy in you know, this is all like pulling from the original Ultraman. That's one of the reasons why those are nice to have on. Uh, home videos because there's lots of weird swirling psychedelic backgrounds in like the opening titles and stuff that if you watch any of those on YouTube just get macro blocked to absolute hell um yeah it sucks so anyway I just want to say this is why I like my physical media because you take the disc and you put it in the thing and then you're done and it's great and you don't have to deal with your Plex server or your HDMI handshake to the TV or any of that shit uh, and this is why I would like it if companies could check their fucking subtitles before they send people the discs yeah it is it's particularly frustrating because the the company that handles the normal releases that i've been buying for all the old ultraman stuff like those are fucking awesome releases of those mill creek they know what they're doing yeah Yeah, it's like just in super high quality really crisp stuff that have like fun little booklets that have lists of all the monsters and that kind of stuff in there um you know there's not a lot of extra bonus features but that's fine um you know i can get it's like a very like you know very cheaply priced very nice releases of those or those shows uh, I, how desperately I wish that they had the license to for Sheen Ultraman. You got a nice Sheen Ultraman version. Um, give me one of that, that nice steel book and all that kind of shit. Um, unfortunately, that is not the case. Yeah. So do not buy that Blu-ray. I will be returning my copy uh, and uh, watching the movie again in a better form at some point. But now that we have talked about watching the movie, let's talk about the movie itself. Uh, this movie slaps. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not even again. I'm not even a big Ultraman guy because I haven't seen that much. I've now seen the first episode of the original Ultraman. Seemed fun. This though, this this was great. Yeah, and I don't. It's probably it's not as good to me as like Shin Godzilla. I also don't think it's as accessible as Shin Godzilla. If you are a yeah. brand new viewer um, who has no history with Ultraman stuff, because this is like because I think one of the things that this movie is doing is it is 
an updated version of the original Ultraman um, that is pulling on specific plot lines of individual episodes from that movie to kind of make its plot. And so Sheen Ultraman is very like, in a very like kind of intentional and self-aware way, it is structured like a TV show. Like it has an yes. episodic nature to its fundamental plotting where it is moving from alien to alien um, that is doing updated versions of the plot lines from the episodes where those aliens appeared in the original Ultraman. And I think for some people that might be a little bit hard to deal with compared to Shin Godzilla structured like a very intentional, like normal movie. Um, but this, there's something about that, that like once I've got kind of into the flow of what Sheen Ultraman was doing, I got pretty into that. Um, there's something like very kind of relentless about the way the film is constructed. Um, and, and all of the storylines and everything is obviously like thematically all connected together with its fundamental perspective on like bureaucracy and like Japan's place in like the kind of global community, which feels like this movie similar to Shin Godzilla is very focused on those things. So there is like a thematic through line that does connect everything. Um, but it but it is a movie that I feel like is probably challenge would be like harder for other viewers to get into. Like I I kind of understand why this movie does not have the same level of reputation as Shin Godzilla does. Also, Godzilla is just more accessible than Ultraman. Godzilla yes. is something that has been popular in America forever. Ultraman is a little boutique label puts out Ultraman, right? The mm -hmm. Criterion Collection puts out Godzilla. You know, it's just, it's a different, like, level of popularity and accessibility on that, too. Also, Godzilla, even if you wanted to watch all the Godzilla, that's like 25 movies. Ultraman <laughs> is like 25 TV series, you know? Yes. 50 episodes each. But no, I mean, I, you know, I wrote a little bit about the movie after watching it, and I just said, you know, I'll leave it to others who know the Ultraman franchise to tell you about the iconography and everything, which you will do for us here, Sean. But, like, for me... I, I really loved the episodic structure, and I, I recognized at a certain point, oh, they're clearly doing an episodic thing. And I even, I did pull out the, my, my Blu-ray set of the original Ultraman show and just looked through the episode guide, and I'm like, oh, all the monsters in this were, are there different episodes of the original show? So they're mm -hmm. pulling from those characters. But like, just as a movie, I like how relentless it is. It's just constantly shifting its story and stakes. I think there's something like really interesting about this versus, you know, your your typical sort of superhero movie, which Ultraman is obviously a superhero. Um, and in that instead of there being this sort of one threat that builds and builds and builds, we keep having these different threats. As they start to build, they get nullified in some way. In one case, it's just because the middle villain of the movie like sees the other Ultra guy and is like, oh, I'm done. I'm done here. Ultraman, you can have Earth. And he leaves, and that's very funny. Uh, and I just love that general rhythm to it in that it packs so much in. It keeps you on your toes. It keeps moving. And within that, it has, I think, just an incredible sense of camera work. For me, like this was my favorite thing about the movie. Um, this is like in the Hall of Fame of movies for me where they are shot digitally, but they are really proactive about doing things with digital cameras you couldn't do on film. I would also point to stuff like Miami Vice or Inland Empire. Uh, there's a Korean director named Hong Sang-soo. And like, I know this is inspired by some of the camera work of old Ultraman, but specifically in like 2023, what he's doing, Shinji Higuchi here, is having these small mobile digital cameras, stuff like GoPros and whatnot. I don't know if that's what they're actually using, but something like that. And they're just mounting them everywhere. And it's just, there are no repeated camera setups in the mm -hmm. movie. There's no normal shot, reverse shot. There's never like, the camera is never in one place for multiple shots. And it's just constantly finding new ways to do it. It's constantly off kilter. It's very disorienting. 
it's very like almost childlike and playful in how much fun it's having with where you can plant the camera. And I think the cumulative effect sort of feels to me like we're looking at the world through the eyes of an alien. And I think it actually makes sense that they keep Ultraman and his human, you know, host kind of at an arm's length from us in this movie, because it kind of feels like the entire POV of the movie is his to a certain extent. And we're aligned with him in that way. Uh, and I just thought all of that was super fun. And that's before you get to the amazing action and music and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with the, like the just the way the movie is shot is so fun. And it does like it does feel like it just really preserves the spirit of the more adventurous older Ultraman episodes, particularly like all the stuff that's just in their like office um, for the SSSP. Uh, that reminds me of the thing that particularly once you get a little bit deeper into each of the Ultraman shows and those these directors have done a few episodes where, you know, you always have this kind of HQ set. Obviously, that is like where a lot of the episodes are filmed. That's where all the different members of the team get together and discuss their plans and stuff. Um, and once a director has like shot on that set a few times, you feel them being like, well, what else can I do here? It's like, oh, well, there's this, like, weird staircase over here with, like, this weird, like, geometric railing. Let's just put the camera behind the railing and then frame and use that as, like, a framework to frame and, like, divide up the frame for the different characters and put them, like, in the... Oh, there's, like, this weird triangle made by this shape. There's, like, a square over here. Let's have them stand in this way. Or, like, you know, shooting behind, like, these windows or through the glass in like, an interesting way, using the lightings, lighting in a very theatrical manner, like like using very extreme framings, which this movie does of like shoving the characters like in one corner um, and using the negative space in an interesting way. Um, like all of that stuff is like, I think preserving the spirit of those old Ultramans while having obviously this, the thing that is different, it's, it's got this much more aggressive um, kind of more modern editing style um, where it, it's, you know, it moves really fast. The pace of the dialogue is way faster. Obviously the acting style is very different. So it, it feels very modern in a lot of ways while still, I think like really retaining the spirit of what that old show was doing um, visually and directorially. And, and also like obviously like the themes and all that kind of stuff are, there's a lot of interesting kind of relationship and friction between those in this film. So as someone who really likes that original Ultraman show and a lot of the other Ultraman shows I've seen, um, it, this is like such a fascinating movie in a very Shin Godzilla-esque way and how it is commenting on and reusing like symbolism and imagery and style um, aesthetics to, to, I think, make a commentary on where we are in the world now versus where we were in the world when the show originally came out. Yeah. And within that, though, like, I also love... You can see all the Shin Godzilla DNA in this, mm -hmm. but I also love how much it shifts its tone, where Shin mm -hmm. Godzilla has a has a satirical side to it, but then also this very heavy, like, Lovecraftian existential horror side to it, you know? And Shin Ultraman is like, this is fucking camp. We're going to have fun mm -hmm. with this. This is big and silly and pop and just... Like, we're going to move fast, and we're going to have characters say ridiculous things. You were talking about different visual gags with, like, the text. One of the text... There's so many funny text things that come up. One of them is a report that I think one of the aliens makes, and it says, Self-defense against aliens through making humans giant. And I just laughed yes. my ass off and freeze-framed that, because I was like, I need to say that on the podcast, because it's a hilarious sentence. And I think all of that, there's such a good, like, Saturday morning quality, which would be the American reference, at least, to, like what kind of thing it's doing. And I really enjoyed just how 
there is no irony in the movie. It is an it is an update to the original text in various ways, but it is not at any point trying to be like better than the text or doing snide jokes about it or anything. Like you can have never seen a second of Ultraman, and you can tell this movie loves Ultraman in a really like profound way. Yeah, like I think one place where you can see that is it does a a kind of joke that I think is a sort of joke you've seen a lot in American movies that deal with this kind of material, but it's handled very differently, right? So like in a lot of American movies that do this kind of nostalgia stuff, there's always like an embarrassment around the name of things. You see this like superhero movies all the time of like, we have to come up with like an excuse or reason for why this character is called Doctor Strange or Spider-Man or whatever, the Fantastic Four. Um, You have to like write in a little thing. And then usually the characters are embarrassed about it. It's like, I can't believe you're calling me that. Like this is ridiculous or silly. Um, In Sheen Ultraman, they do write in an explanation for where the monster names come from, which is funny just because in the original shows, there's no explanation. Like, it's just this monster appears and everybody looks at it and it's like, it's a Zeton or whatever. It's just (laughs) everyone. Well, I guess with the alien ones, the aliens do show up and they always say, oh, I'm a Mephilus Sajin. And they always just tell you who they are. But with like the weird giant, like the drill monster, for instance, it just like sort of shows up on screen and everybody knows that that thing's called what is it i think it's like that's the naranga i believe um or maybe that's gabara i'm looking at the names here um but it's that sort of thing it's just like everyone just sees it they just call it that there's no explanation about where or how the name existed um here i like they just write in one quick gag which is that one of the guys who's like the some sort of middle manager there's a lot of like different kind of bureaucracy stuff here but one of the middle managers just likes coming up with the names just comes up with random names but then he does everyone just rolls with it there's no nobody's making snide jokes about it nobody's going like oh this is so stupid i can't believe we're calling this thing garunga um it's just oh okay yep nope it's gabra showed up he's called gabra now like and they just immediately are moving on to the next thing and there's something i really like about they do write in the little bit of a joke because because like somebody has to be coming up with these fucking names and i like that it's just this like random guy but once he comes up with the names they just treat it the way that they did on the show where it's like that's just what it's called we're just here doing our job we're gonna go kill this giant monster thing and we're just gonna move on with our day (laughs) i adored that that was like a it's because it's very early in the movie you get that joke and it is you know one of the actors here is hidatoshi nishijima who's the head of the sssp and he is He's a great actor. You might have seen him in Drive My Car. He's just phenomenal. And he brings this real weight to it. And I think he's the one who gets the signal. He's like, we are calling this one Naranga. And you can see he has this little beat of like, this is silly. And he's like, all right, Naranga it is. And it's just, there's something about that actor delivering it of just like, we're doing this with a gravity. And I kind of mm-hmm. loved that element of it. Uh, and when I was watching the the first episode of the original Ultraman this morning, there was a moment where I'm like, this must have been very inspirational to how this movie handles it. Because at the end of the first episode of Ultraman, they're all standing in a circle and they're like, well, our new alien friend, he'll need a name. And they're all like, what should we call him? And one of them says, I know. Ultraman and someone says oh I like it it's very ultra and I laughed my ass off and I'm like that is exactly the spirit they have in this movie to the names and it is the exact right kind of spirit yes and they never once ever at least in all the shows I've watched after original Ultraman they never explained where the, that Ultraman's name came from there's no like <laughs> and this is why he's called Ultraman Ace it's just like yeah it's just Ultraman Ace uh, yep. you know, I don't know why all these at a certain point it turned into like Ultraman was just Ultraman's name 
Um, and you've got Ultraman, you've got Ultra 7, you've got a, a second Ultraman that they eventually just called Ultraman Jack because they needed to come up with a new name for him after the fact. Now I'm on Ultraman Ace. And I love that because then sometimes on the shows I'm watching, Zoffy shows up because Zoffy's at the end of the original Ultraman series, but they never changed his name. So he's just Zoffy. Here's Ultraman, here's Ultra 7, here's <laughs> Ultraman 2, here's Ultraman Ace, and their buddy Zoffy. Uh, he's just there and he's never gotten an Ultra name. And I love it. I love that they've never retconned the name situation uh, to sort of account for Zafi. He's just Zafi. It is indeed uh, absolutely wonderful. So, yeah. And you know, just in general, like that that sense of tone, that sense of playfulness, it just really pervades the movie all over the place. And I think it is like, again, even if you have no knowledge of this thing, I think there's something endearing about the enthusiasm with which the movie just brings this all to bear. There's something about like the barrage at the beginning of text where they show you all of the members of the SSSP with their name and rank, but it goes by faster than you could possibly read in English or Japanese. Yes. And all of that is just like, there's something very delightful about it all to me. The movie is so excited to have a good time. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is. It is here to play and have fun. Um, And I think that like kind of attitude is suffused throughout the film. Yeah. All right. So where, how, where do you want to take this, Jonathan? How do you want to break this thing down? You're the Ultraman expert. You tell me where where would you like to go talking about this movie? Um, so I guess like, let's just like start with a little bit of kind of the context around this, because I think this also helps set up what the beginning of the movie is doing. So like for like people who don't know, like Ultraman stuff actually starts with a show called Ultra Q, um, which came out, I think what that's like 1965, I believe is Ultra Q. Um, and that was like, you know, pre Ultraman, um, where it, the concept was, let's make a show that's sort of Twilight Zone-esque, that's more of an anthology show, but each episode is going to have a giant monster in some way, shape, or form, because the whole show was developed by and created by the Subaraya Company, which is a company managed by AG or was managed by AG Subaraya, who was the main effects guy on the original Godzilla movie, as well as a lot of the other Toho giant monster movies at the time. Toho is like the studio that owns it, but then the Subaraya production crew is the crew that actually made the um, shows. And so that's why they're able to use like a lot of the Toho sound effects. They're able to use a, reuse a bunch of the costumes of Toho Kaiju and old Ultraman stuff is because it's all Toho fundamentally. Toho also produced this film. Um, and so they made Ultra Q as just this standalone show with just a bunch of one-off episodes where it's like it does have a crew of like three or four main characters that are in all the episodes, but they're always dealing with some weird giant monster thing and some kind of sci-fi story. Um, and, and Ultra Q was quite popular. And then so in the 1966, they made a sequel show to it effectively, Ultraman. Um, and Ultraman 1 is was not intended to be like a giant franchise thing at the time. Um, part of the concept was that there would be a, a whole line of different Ultra shows. So you have Ultra Q, you have Ultraman. There'd be some, like, that's one of the reasons Ultra 7 is called Ultra 7, not Ultraman 7. Um, and all the other Ultramans are Ultraman something. Ultra 7 is the only one that doesn't have that because the idea was we're going to make a different thing each time. Um, but Ultraman obviously quickly became so popular that, as a matter of fact, like it just became the Ultraman franchise, not the Ultra franchise. Um, and so that's what a lot of this movie is doing at the beginning is it's playing with this sort of like unified timeline in this other kind of parallel world where 
all the different monsters they show in quick succession. They kind of give you this kind of history of the world. That's where they start to show you the SSSP. Um, it's showing you a bunch of different kaiju from Ultra Q, including the first one, Gomez, um, which was one of the monsters in the first episode of Ultra Q, which was notable because it was made out of a reused Godzilla costume. I think that's the King Kong versus Godzilla costume was Gomez. Um, and so what they did in this movie, you only see it very briefly, but they do reuse, I looked it up, they reused the model from Shin Godzilla and modified the CG model from Shin Godzilla and put a <laughs> bunch of dumb shit on it to make their version of Gomez in this movie. And they do this thing where they show like a whole series of different kaiju that are all different kaiju from Ultra Q to kind of create this world that's pulling from, okay, we had all the kaiju stuff. Like, Japan has been dealing with all this kaiju shit before Ultraman shows up. They made the SSSP, which is the group that the the original Ultraman is based around. Um, and then that's where we start with here. Now we have our, our kind of new Ultraman character introduced for this film that takes care of that. But there's something very fun about the way it's sort of thinking about how do you pull these different threads that in the original shows were never really meant to tie together. The series, as far as I know, never really goes on to make a strong, like narrative chronology connection. It's very hard to draw a clear chronology between the different shows or every year Japan has to have just decided to make a whole different version of a super science military team that deals with Kaiju. And we're never going to talk about what happened to the old team, um, that kind of shit. So, you know, those like connections are pretty hard to draw, but I like that they sort of think about at the beginning, how can you combine all these different elements that went into making the Ultraman series, what it was, um, and pull on all these different little references to make the setting for this film. They also do something very fun with the opening titles that I noticed. This is mm -hmm. in the original o Ultraman opening, which is it starts with like the it's a very Doctor Who like third Doctor mm -hmm. era thing where it's all the psychedelic visuals coming in and it says Ultra Q and then that goes away and it says Ultraman, yes. a fun tokusatsu show. And then uh, in the movie they do that, but it's Shin Godzilla. That goes away, and then it is Sheen Ultraman, a fun tokusatsu movie. And I yes. was like, this is great. Yes, and they use, like, the great, that great sound effect from the Ultra Q opening where um, it's like, because it's, yeah, it's that psychedelic image of the logo that's, like, twisting to, like, form into place. And there's just, like, this weird, like, very eerie cracking sound that plays. Like, that's where you feel some of that Twilight Zone and Outer Limits, like, kind of tone that they're playing with in Ultra Q. And they, they just reuse that exact sound effect for the opening of this movie and then have it explode into Sheen Ultraman. Um, but, yes, it is. It's just playing with all of that stuff, which is great as someone who has, has in the scope of Ultraman, seen really a very small portion of this franchise. I'm glad that it's pulling only as far as I can tell on some of the shit that I have watched. So it's like there's nothing from like as far as I can tell, there's there, there's no Ultraman Geed references or anything like that. It's all Ultra Q, Ultraman 1, and it's very much playing in that sort of sandbox. Yeah, but like even again, if you haven't seen those early shows, I do like the just speed with which it starts of like... Because I just love the idea, and I, I know this is what Ultra Q is, of all these kaiju showing up and humans having to figure out what the hell do we uh -huh. do with them. And so when the movie starts, you have this very capable unit that knows what they're doing. And I think that opening scene 
um, which I know is great because I saw it three times versus <laughs> with the different times I was trying to watch this movie, uh, is so fun of seeing them attack. It's, it's the, the bits, the Naranga monster that is invisible and it's eating electricity and then all of that stuff happens and Ultraman lands. And it is such a good, like, opening set piece that is so balls to the wall, so fast. And again, it is, it's cool to immediately establish, like, hey, this crew, like, really knows what they're doing. That's, like, actually something I think is, like, missing in the first episode of the TV version of Ultraman is just the sense of, like, how does this crew do... And I guess it, they wouldn't have needed that because you would have had Ultra Q for, even if it's not those same characters, some of the same ideas would have existed. But here I just like immediately getting this team together before you get all the Ultraman stuff that happens. Yeah, it, yeah it's fun to see their sort of vision of... Pretty similar to, I think, Shin Godzilla's take on that, like, the task force that they put together. That's like, here's, like, all the best people we can find. Um, and they're all kind of working together here to come up with these solutions. And it's much more explicitly science-oriented. Like, the SSSP is supposed to be the science group or whatever in the original Ultraman. But they still had, like, here's the dude who's, like, the military guy who's there who's, like, you know, a big idiot. Um, and they they're... You know, the, there was less of focus on, like, the science and technology piece of it. It would come up when they wanted it to come up on the episodes. Um, here, I like the sense of it really is about this group of, like, weird sort of antisocial geniuses that are all trying to, like, figure out how the fuck you deal with this kaiju shit. Um, because it's so beyond the mean of mankind to sort of deal with something on this scale. Uh, and, yeah, they just really quickly sort of establish how this group kind of all functions together. And you've got Tamara, your captain, who has to kind of wrangle them together. Um, you have the two different kind of science people, uh, Taki and Funaberi, um, that are dealing with their shit. And then you have your very quiet uh, Kaminaga, who's going to be our Ultraman, who's there. And he seems to have been, like, some kind of, like, super a secret agent spy guy or something based on the way that people talk about him, which is cool. Yeah, and then you get after this whole scene is when you meet the Asami character who is mm -hmm. extremely fun and her introduction is this like long sequence of the camera mounted kind of from her back while she moves through the world that's really cool. But I actually love the team. That's something that really struck me about this movie. It's true in Shin Godzilla as well, actually. The characters are very vivid. But I think here, because you spend so much time with this core unit... But the movie is moving so fast. Mm -hmm. Like, I could imagine the characters kind of falling by the wayside. But I really liked this group of characters. And some of them, I think, have, like, some genuine arcs going on. Like, Taki, who's the big nerd who has the big USS Enterprise thing on his desk. Which the movie has so much fun figuring out where to put the camera under uh -huh. that stupid big Enterprise model. Which I adored. But, like, his whole sort of, like, arc of kind of coming into himself over the course of the movie is, like, kind of weirdly touching. And I just generally, like, liked this cast in a way that is, I think, hard to do in a movie that is two hours, moving this fast, has, like, five major antagonists. Very impressive. Yeah, because, yeah, it's never really stopping and slowing down for these characters. Like, the most you get for something like that is the scene where, like, Taki has given up hope near the end of the movie and goes and sits on the staircase and hits the rail, right? Like, the, the movie doesn't have a lot of space to stop and really sort of focus on the interiority of any of these people, but it is, I think, very canny in how they're written and how they're acted that it makes a kind of a meal out of every single moment. It can have those characters on screen. So by the time you get to the end, as you do really have, like, a relationship built up with them and you feel like you know who all these people are and you care about them and you want to see them prevail, right, as, like, you know, they kind of represent the hope of humanity in this very kind of cynical, fucked up, bureaucratic world that they all live in. Yes, and some of it is just down to, like, 
the casting is so strong that someone like Hidetoshi Nishijima just comes in with a sense of gravitas that you don't have to explain that character. You just get that he is someone who is like, has a really good sense of leadership. He has a good sense of the people on his team. He can walk into a room and kind of disarm a situation. I like how many times he walks into, you know, spaces with a bunch of military guys getting ready to drop bombs. And it's like, nah, wait, let's see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a very, it's almost becomes a recurring gag at some point because increasingly crazy shit happens up to and including the gigantism of poor Asami, which is very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, cause this movie gets properly batshit at different points. But yes, I, I, I really like I would love um, more with these characters. There is something about that. The movie has a, is very close-ended in so much as Ultraman disappears at the end. But, like, I would love to see more with this cast if they ever want to do something like that. Because they're very fun. Yeah, just, you know, you can just make a Sheen Ultra 7, have a couple of other people join the crew. Um, and then you get your Morboshi Dan, the the human version of Ultra 7, and, and go from there. And it, that I would absolutely show up for a fucking Sheen Ultra 7 movie. That would kick so much ass. Um, but yeah, it is yeah, it is a very fun group of characters. But then, of course, you also in that opening scene um, is where we get to meet our Ultraman, and that is fuck, it's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool with the, that whole scene where Ultraman shows up. Um, I, I find the choice of having him be like silver very interesting. So it's like he's silver completely, and then um, then when he appears the second time after he's fully fused. Um, I think it's like the implication is it's after he's fuses with Kaminaga is why he gets the red shit. Um, but yeah, Ultraman shows up, fights the monster, and they just make, they just like pull everything they can out of that moment. And I think the way that they execute on a lot of the sort of basic sort of elements of of Ultraman and the way that he fights, the way he looks in this movie, um, and getting a lot of fun first, you know, they really milk that first spacium beam he fires where if you don't know anything about Ultraman you will probably have no idea like what is he doing when he puts his arm up in this vertical position if you know Ultraman which if you're Japanese I have to imagine no matter who you are you would at least know what the fucking spacium beam pose is but he puts the arm up the vertical one then he puts one out like way to the side horizontal and he's just like it's like the first time Goku uses, or like Master Roshi uses the Kamehameha in Dragon Ball, and it's just you get like a very long, elaborate version of the, all the posing. Um, it's kind of like that, where you just get the, so much buildup, and then he fires the Spacium Beam. Um, and this is like probably one of the most Shin Godzilla-esque moments, is just the way that they sort of visualize the destructive power of Ultraman and what's happening here on the scale, because you can kind of see it more from a human level perspective as well with the way that they do some of the shots. And he just cuts through that whole mountainside with the spacium beam. And then the, the added little touch, the coup de gras at the end where the monster blows up, which I think is a fun reference because the monster like always blows up in Ultraman. Um, there's <laughs> a reason why all monsters usually actually don't show up multiple times in Ultraman. You think that it'd be a thing that they'd reuse monsters a bunch. They don't because they can't because they blow those fucking costumes to smithereens at the end of most episodes. And it is very <laughs> satisfying to watch um, because it's, you know, that's all practical. That's just, they have a big rubber suit. They put some explosive in it and they just blow it up and shoot it. Um, and here you obviously it's all digital, but the way that they sell the movement and the physicality and the power and the weight of what's happening, it's, it is extremely satisfying, especially as someone going from just watching the 70s stuff to immediately jumping to this. It is such a huge gap in terms of the way that they're able to shoot some of this action. It's very satisfying. Well, let's talk about that because I think this movie has some of the most impressive special effects I've ever seen. 
And it's not in the level of like, oh my gosh, the CGI is so high resolution, I can't possibly tell it's CGI. I don't mean it like that. I think the direction, the staging, the storyboarding, Mm -hmm. the impact of the special effects in this is some of the best deployment of CGI I've ever seen. And it's very similar, I think, in spirit to some of what they did with Shin Godzilla, where they're using modern effects but playing by a lot of the ideas and rules of older, you know, kaiju productions. Like, just one thing that Higuchi is so good at throughout this movie is that every effect is happening in a real-world space. Mm-hmm. It's always out in a forest or a big—they obviously have a big plant uh, a fight in, like, a big power plant kind of thing, yes. right? Because you're always going to have that. And it's all these real spaces, and it feels very tangible. And the CGI is, I think, actually very accomplished at, like, blending into the environment, and you'll have a real space, and then it will be destroyed. And, like, you're talking about with Ultraman's first big spatium beam when he blows the mountain apart. You've you know that space at that point. You've mm-hmm. gotten to know it, and these all also kind of look like the spaces you know Toho would like go to for a Godzilla movie or something. Or obviously, you know Ultraman. If you've seen that, my point of reference is more like Godzilla stuff. But like, I really liked the feeling of all that, and of course, the monsters absolutely look like you could do them as people in suits. They're done in CG here, and they have more mobility and whatnot. But they're not like trying to do the like legendary monster verse thing of like completely rethinking it, which I, I like the CGI in those movies, but there's such a charm to it here. And I think there's so much good just choreography and impact and astonishment and fun from how they are doing it here. Uh, and obviously Shinji Higuchi is one of the like most experienced people in this department. I, mm-hmm. He was the effects director on the Gamera trilogy that you're always talking about and lots and lots of other stuff. And obviously then Shin Godzilla and whatnot. Uh, and you can just tell here, there's so many good ideas happening in every effects sequence. Yeah, I mean, it, it is just about, I think, selling the scale and the power of these monsters and then Ultraman and really capturing, I think, that like the the kind of goofiness of Ultraman fighting these things, where it is like this guy who has some like judo moves who's fighting big weird monsters and shit, and it's very silly. Um, but it and, it and you know fundamentally what it is is it's giant monster pro wrestling, like it, in the sense that like he's literally doing pro wrestling moves. Um, and it's but it's incredibly goofy, but it's very satisfying. And I think that they are able to sell the sort of like bizarreness of it in the alien kind of quality of Ultraman here. And some of that comes down to just like Ultraman's design is so nice. They've really kind of captured, I think a lot of the physicality of specifically the original Ultraman, partially because they did do some mocap with Bean Fudia, who was the guy in the suit specifically in Ultraman one. Um, and it's a, usually a different person in each of the Ultra shows that's in the suit. Um, Bean Fudia did play one of the main cast members in like just like a person like outside of a monster suit in Ultra 7, which was also cool. But Bean Fudia has like this very sort of like lanky body and he's got these very long arms. He just has like a very distinctive silhouette and it makes like the original Ultraman has a kind of uncanny, slightly alien look to him that the other Ultramans don't quite have because they look more like normal people in suits. Whereas there's just something a little bit different about Bean Fudia. And then I know that Hideaki Anno was one of the other mocap actors they use, which is just delightful um and you can find images online of Anno with his big goofy curly hair and stuff but he's wearing the mocap suit and it's the best shit in the world i mean obviously you know 
that like hey Hideaki Yano has watched knows Ultraman a lot better than most people so I absolutely think like getting him to try to do the movements that guy's probably been playing Ultraman since he was like four years old or some shit so it's like can't ask for someone much better than that um but it does just make Ultraman look fucking great in this movie I think this the the use of color the very kind of thin design that he's got there's something they've they've managed to do that like in practical Ultraman would be a little bit harder to do. Like in practical Ultraman stuff, there's like this big kind of fin he has. You know, you see the fin on his head, but he has one that goes that goes all the way down his back, and that's there because that's where like the zipper and some of the practical elements of the costume are. Because most giant monster costumes have all these other like bits and bobs on them they can use to hide some of those practical pieces. But Ultraman's costume is so minimalistic. That, like, you need to come up with little design pieces to hide those practical elements. And obviously they're able to not do those with the CG version of the character. So they've made the character, like, more slim, more sleek. Um, and I just think the angles and everything on him, it just looks so good. It's kind of that thing of, like, it's what you picture if you've seen the show's Ultraman looking in your head. Not quite the actual Ultraman costume because the, quite, the actual Ultraman costume can't quite execute on the vision of the character because there has to be a real person in there. There has to be specific things on the costume to count for that. You know, the eyes have to be designed in a certain way so the actor can see something. None of those things have to be brought into consideration here. So it's able to just be this kind of perfect ideal version of that original Ultraman and that I think adds something to the design where it just, it's such a cool looking version of the character here. Yeah. And I just, I do still, I loved it with Sheen Godzilla. I love it here. The idea of doing CGI inspired by the suits and the logic of that with these different improvements that you can do that you wouldn't have been able to do with a physical suit, but not like completely rethinking it. There's something really fun about that. And there's something about where this movie I think is using kind of the plasticky, look of CG to its benefit where like some of the characters look very uncanny and that makes total sense because like one of them I think the first major alien you have uh, Zareb is like an alien with like no back like uh -huh. he turns around and he's like weirdly like 2.5D and I went and looked at like the alien he's based on in the original Ultraman show and I see how they're like rethinking it here and it's a really fun mix of what you could do with a suit versus what you can do with CGI and all of those movements and stuff it's really cool I think it's like it's something that I would love for like a lot of American directors working on superhero stuff to like really study what this movie is doing because with many fewer resources I think they're going a whole hell of a lot further in really getting you pumped in those scenes and doing really creative shit yeah and and it's just like he also just looks like Ultraman you know um, because right. that's that's the thing that you know you kind of take for granted when you're watching this but it's it would be very easy for them to say, let's just go. We we don't have to have a person in the suit. Let's just go like way off the fucking register and do something very different. Um, you know, kind of like what we have with like, you know, obviously the, the original American Godzilla, which is just a totally different thing. But even the more modern modern Godzilla or American Godzilla, which I do like, but like the big chunky version of him, which is like he looks like Godzilla, but it's a very different aesthetic of the character and here there it feels like the intent is let's try to capture the essence of what Ultraman in that original show was trying to look like I know that they went back to a lot of the concept art for all these sorts of things um to sort of to try to execute on that vision which is really cool and then the other piece that I just as soon as they started to do this I basically want to just jump out of my seat and start clapping was how Ultraman flies in this movie 
is the it best so thing. Good. It's so fucking amazing. Because what it is doing is it's using CG effects to try to like make, I think, what is not an intentional element of those original effects, but a byproduct of what those effects are. But here they're using CG to kind of incorporate into the character, which is in the original Ultraman, and so far every Ultraman thing I've seen, the way that they do the flying is that they'll have the guys in the suit, he like bends his knees and jumps in the air with his arms outstretched, and then you cut to a shot where you have a like plastic model that's just a mold, like a model made out of a mold that's very stiff of Ultraman in his flying pose, and then you just use you know wires and shit like that, the same stuff you use to make the model planes fly. Um, it's all just like wire work and model work to make Ultraman fly around, and they'll do things where they'll use that and they'll spin the model to make it look like Ultraman's winding up for a big kick. Um, and it looks, you know, it's very, very goofy in those old Ultraman shows, but in the way I find very endearing. Um, and if you imagine, you know, being a little kid and watching these on like a little four by three tube set in the 60s or early 70s, like th those effects compared to something like Star Trek or Doctor Who at the same time are way better than those shows could manage. So it's like they, they are incredibly good effects for a TV show for their time. But I like that here their choice wasn't, well, let's just make it we have a CG model of Ultraman. We can just make him fucking fly and just animate him flying and make it look like the way that Superman flies or something. And they, they could have done that, but they said, fuck that. Let's get like, from, from when I looked it up, they got the actual models they used on the original Ultraman. They scanned those in and made a big, like highly detailed 3d version of those models. They could put into the scene and had Ultraman fly around like that. And it's just by, you know, there's certain, like, movements that it's able to do because it's a 3D model. You don't have to have it attached to strings and shit like that. That you're able to do some stuff with it that looks really cool. They add some, some sound effects and they give an explanation of he flies by manipulating gravity. That makes all of it feel very intentional. But underneath all of it, it's the exact same thing that old show was doing. And it's great. Like, it, it, it's, it's so satisfying because it is the exact same pose. Like, the way that his back is arched and his hands outstretched, it's like to a T, it is that exact thing from the original Ultraman. Um, and when he's in that flying mode, they make him very stiff and rigid, just the way that that model obviously originally was. But here they just sell it as something very intentional and incorporated into the character to make it feel alien and uncanny and weird and unsettling and like kind of unhuman that it's just there's no way that anything could fly like this and so he's just breaking the laws of reality and the way that they've incorporated that fundamentally into the character i think is like such a stroke of genius and as soon as he went schwa and then jumped into the air like that i was i was on cloud nine i was just so fucking thrilled when i saw that shit it was the best so, like, I have a different experience of this, obviously, because I don't have the TV show to compare it to the same way. I honestly, I'm looking at the scene again just on my copy here, and it comes 12 minutes into the movie. That's the other thing. This movie gets to fucking yes. town right off the bat, and I love that about it. Um, it's true of Shin Godzilla as well, although Godzilla has to evolve over the course of the movie. But, like... The scene where he gets up and flies. So he's done the big spaceship beam. He's blown up the mountain. He's blown up the, the Naranga or whatever its name is. And now he kind of looks around for a minute and then he gets up and flies. I honestly was like very awe-inspired by it. I was kind of like mm -hmm. taken aback because the way it's shot is really cool. Because it is – and looking at it now, I can see exactly what you're talking about. And it is absolutely hilarious to see him just go stiff as a board like that uh, as he flies. But the way they do it, it's also this really cool shot where it absolutely looks like they are shooting something 
something tactile in the world and they have mm-hmm. this sort of shaky hand cam up in the sky and it's like it can't quite keep track of it and there's all this dirt coming up around him as he's flying away and then you are also intercutting with the characters back at the base trying to figure out like what the fuck is going on let's keep track of him and the more he moves the kind of shakier the camera's getting and it really does feel like you're capturing this sort of force of nature flying away from you and there's a real sense of I kind of felt like probably that kid you were talking about in Japan in 1966 you know staring at my 4x3 little tube TV where I was like this is so cool and then you explained to me it looks like a toy and I'm like it does but it's also so cool and I love it yeah, and and it's just you know the dedication to the sort of like satisfying all those little pieces where that's because that's you know what the, that opening section of the movie is. It's just an episode of Ultraman because at the end of every episode of Ultraman, Ultraman gets in a fight with the monster. Most of the time, he shoots a spacing beam at it. At the end, you kind of wonder why didn't he just shoot the spacing beam at the beginning? But then you guess he <laughs> wouldn't have had the cool fight. So okay, um, the monster blows up. Then he goes schwa and then flies into the air like that and then disappears and then. Um, mysteriously, you have the human host, which in the original show is Hayata, um, but whoever it is, run up, um, and he's just there, and all the people are like, oh, he's live. Um, and the one thing I wish that they did, although it wouldn't have fit Kaminaga's character, but the it, it's always like the guy runs up, and he's like, oi! Like, hey! Like, from a distance, he's like running through a field, they're like, Hayata, you're okay! Um, and you're like, how has nobody ever figured out that this guy is Ultraman? That every time they get into fight, Hayata seemingly is killed, Ultraman shows up, kills the monster, flies away, as soon as Ultraman disappears into the horizon, Hayata shows up behind a field of reeds and goes, hey, guys, it's me! Hey, I'm okay! It's a very Clark Kent Superman thing, right? Yes, yes. Every time Lois is hanging out with Clark and then something happens and then Clark disappears and Superman shows up. Uh, Absolutely. But one thing this movie does interesting on a plot level is it skips the moment where Ultraman and Kaminaga join. And it Mm -hmm. kind of backfills that later. Uh, and, and it kind of is, I feel like that's one moment where maybe is relying on your like maybe ingrained knowledge of the structure Mm -hmm. of kind of an Ultraman story, because it leaves it as a bit of a mystery as to where Ultraman came from and where Kaminaga is. And like, even having not seen Ultraman, I knew enough to know that's what was going to happen, obviously. Um, but it was kind of interesting for me the way it kind of keeps you on your toes and Kaminaga is sort of a secondary character. He's away from the rest of the characters for a lot of this. He's kept at more of an arm's distance from us. Yeah, I really like how they handled that whole side of the movie. That, um, Especially because it does feel like it has some of its roots in how Hayata is treated in the original Ultraman, which is pretty different than the other Ultra hosts. Because you, like, Hayata is such a sort of, like, blank slate um, in the original Ultraman. He doesn't have a lot going on. Um, and so... Like, he just feels like a vessel to be filled with the character of Ultraman by the writers um, in a way that then for in later shows like Ultra 7, there is no human host. Ultra 7 just transforms into a human character, Moriboshi Dan. Um, and, and he has he that's like a literal Superman thing of where it is the same person. He has two identities. And then later ones, they make sure that like Hideki Go, who's the host of Ultraman 2, Ultraman Jack, basically, Return of Ultraman. He has like a whole life and he has a personality and likes and interests and all that kind of stuff. Where he's a real person. Hyatt is not quite that. 
Um, he's more kind of evolved like a prototype character. And Kaminaga, I think they're, what they're doing with him here, it feels like a modern take on that, where they keep Kaminaga as a character at total arm's length. The only thing you know about him in the whole movie is one, he like did the, this kind of spy stuff and he was really good at his job, right? He worked at like the police security bureau or whatever. Um, and so everyone's very impressed with whatever his career was. You know that. And you know that he went out to like risk his life to try to save this one kid, which is also the most Ultraman thing ever. Um, that like it's a constant plot device in these shows that there's like a kid or a family or someone that's like in the city where the monster is and they're gonna get hurt and you're always and they're always like going on the radio. It's like stop the attack! Like there's a kid in there. We have to go save them. And it's like the simple heroism of the team and they're like it's rather than us trying to take out this monster as quickly as possible it's more important that we go make sure that these people are safe even if it's just one kid save their life and then we deal with the monster it's that simple old school kind of hero story that we don't really do much nowadays but that's like one of the one things you know like kaminaga is he did that shit he said there's a kid there i'm gonna go save him um, and then later in the movie, obviously, if you know Ultraman stuff, you will know this is what happened. But the movie later sort of makes it clear he was killed when he was hit by that piece of debris when Ultraman landed. Um, Ultraman fused with him. Um, and he is like this sort of like split character um, Ultraman Kaminaga. Although in this version, it feels more explicitly clear that the personality of the person we're seeing on screen for most of the movie is Ultraman in Kaminaga's body, and it doesn't feel like Kaminaga as a person is much there anymore, but his, like, subconscious is influencing and changing Ultraman some way. Um, but I think that's, like, just a very cool modern take on that kind of dual character, Hayata and Ultraman, from the original show, and think about how can we explore that and make it a little bit more of, like, kind of an intentional and deeper psychological concept for Ultraman, who's this alien who sees the simple act of heroism by one human, is fascinated about it, decides to save that human's life and in so doing he is changed and learns about sort of like the fundamental goodness of humanity and all those sorts of things um and at its core it's a very ultraman story that is very hopeful and very optimistic um but it's like feels a bit heavier and contrasted with more kind of cynicism around the edges than those old ultraman shows ever really dealt with um and i think it's one thing that keeps this version of the character very fresh Yes, absolutely. And I really like like that really worked for me. I think mm -hmm. it's something that really helps tie the multiple episodes of the movie together in that very televisual way is that with each of them Ultraman's links to humanity is being tested more and more, right? And he is having to make more and more sort of declarative statements against whichever alien bad guy has come next about where he is going to stand with these people and along the way also you have the team having to deal with who the hell is this guy we he looks like kaminaga he isn't kaminaga we don't we didn't know kaminaga that well all of this stuff and i think that just makes for a very dynamic back and forth between the characters and evolution of the character as a hero that is very fun and then very rewarding at the end when kaminaga gets to open his eyes but that's the end of the movie we don't get mm -hmm. to see where he goes from there the character is kind of very literally kept at arm's length from us and another thing I think that makes is that we're very kind of aligned in his POV to some mm -hmm. extent where he's a sort of absence at the middle of the movie that we fill in a little bit because his eyes are to some extent literally or figuratively ours. Yes, which again, it feels like sort of a very smart take on what in that original Ultraman show I think is its biggest weakness is that Hayata is not 
an interesting central character because I think he is meant to be a like a vet a void for the audience to fill but I don't think that that works as a vehicle for a TV show and that's proved by like every post Ultraman show which none of them have done that um, all of them have come up with a much more sort of developed central character and all those shows are much better like I like the original Ultraman and the original Ultraman has a lot of good stuff but it's the weakest of all of those shows by a pretty substantial margin like I think it's probably even weaker than Ultra Q um but it is like for a movie, it does make for a very interesting, simple, central premise for a movie and for a two hour story, as you say, to have him be this kind of void that the audience kind of fills themselves in and this sort of central enigma of what is Kaminaga exactly, where is the split between Kaminaga and Ultraman. And I think it's important that they don't show the meeting between Kaminaga and Ultraman for that exact reason, right? Because the original. Ultraman shows you Ultraman and Hayata meeting and stuff like that in their kind of conversation. Um, here, you miss that whole scene. I think it's implied that it has happened and that they probably had some sort of meeting of the minds and that Ultraman has saved his life in this way and is continuing on his duty that Kaminag had in protecting humanity. But you don't quite see it, so you're kept away from that. So you're trying to solve that mystery and sort of fill that void yourself. Um, and it's just a very smart piece of writing to kind of figure out a way to pin the whole movie around this one character. Absolutely. And then you have sort of our three major villains or uh, Zophie, I think it's hard to say where he falls exactly, yes. but he does try to destroy humanity. But you have your three big alien visitors. You have Zareb, Mephilus, and Zophie, two of whom are voiced by big anime voice actors. Uh -huh. Zareb is Kenjiro Tsuda, my boy, Seto Kaiba, lots of other characters love him. He's hilarious here. Zophie is Koichi Yamadera. And then you have Mephilus, who's played by Koji Yamamoto, who is a human being. We have, I mean, they're all human beings, but you know what I mean. We see him yes. on screen because Mephilus is in the form of a person. And I love every single one of these characters. They're fucking great. And I love the movie. I feel like tricks you every time that this is the rest of the movie because it feels uh -huh. like we're building a big plot. And then it resolves fairly quickly and we get into the next thing and you're like oh this is great I can't wait to see where this is going and then like Mephilus just sees Zophie over Ultraman's shoulder and is like I'm out of here this is this isn't worth it which is a great way to set up your next villain I think uh, but I loved these characters and I love the way this is where like you have a lot of the same social satire that is in Shin Godzilla it's a little goofier here but it's that same kind of bureaucracy layer where every one of these aliens lights the fucking world on fire and you're seeing you know all of the you know bureaucratic regime of Japan having to deal with like there's multiple scenes where the prime minister is coming to have meetings with aliens yes. and I love that by the end of the movie they're all kind of like very jaded to it it's so funny yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there. Before we get to the alien stuff, there is that one scene with the other kaiju that shows up with the drill head. Um, yes. Uh, which that is an amazing scene. That is one where um, you have, where the, where you realize that Sheen Ultraman is actually quite substantially less violent than the original Ultraman show. Because, <laughs> and I was actually surprised when this didn't happen, because this monster, as with all the monsters, is a monster from the original show. Um, but it's got the drill head, and that drill head opens up like a flower petals almost, and it's got its like kind of turtle head underneath, which is just one of the best designs from that original Ultraman, which is probably why they picked this one. Um, and it's a great sequence. It's like, you know, the fight is really good. The one thing that this Ultraman doesn't do is he doesn't rip those things off its fucking head and leave little, like, red <laughs> chunks of flesh underneath. Uh, because that's what the old Ultraman shows love to do, is put little chunks onto those costumes, so 
that like Ultraman can just rip pieces off of the monster and have it scream in pain as it's got like some, you know, <laughs> in fucking Ultraman Ace, there's literally like blood splurting out. Um, which from what I understand, they kind of stopped doing this after Ultraman Ace because people were like, this is getting pretty violent for a kid's show. Um, but here it's a little bit more tame. Ultraman doesn't rip off all of its little petals and have blood spewing everywhere and shit like that. He just punches it really hard in the face. What he does do is he comes and flies down backwards. This is the best moment of him yes. as like a toy model where he comes and flies down backwards and then does this big spin in the air and then kicks it on the like uh, drill part of it and like sends it flying. And it is exactly what you're talking about, like a, a newfangled CGI version of the let's just spin the toy around thing. Uh -huh. And it is glorious. And then he comes back down and does this landing. And this is where like the mocap is so good where you can – they even like – the mocap is great, but then also, like, as he lands and he kind of does the crouch and then kind of comes yes, back to full height, pose. they even, yep, the pose, they even have the body moving like it is a suit, like it's uh -huh. kind of, like, rolling up on him in a way. That's the kind of thing that you don't generally get in, like, CGI kaiju movies now, especially, like, American ones, is recreating the sensation of a suit moving on a body. They absolutely do that here, and it's great. And they do it with some of the kaiju, too. But yeah, I'd actually, I kind of had forgot about this moment until you mentioned it, but it's so true. And so, overall, we do have basic five episodes in the movie mm -hmm. we have the two kaiju and then the three aliens and it's so cool yeah then he punches that big dumb monster in the face um and and that's where you get the like whole thing of because that one is like the nuclear monster that's going after the nuclear plant which i believe was the plot of that episode of the show I mean, it's the plot of a lot of episodes of ultraman is the monster <laughs> trying to go for the nuclear plant um for you know for obvious reasons uh, and Ultraman specifically doesn't use the Spacium Beam on that one because he doesn't want to create like a nuclear disaster, basically. And that's when all the people realize, oh, he's fighting for us, um, which is like a cool moment where Ultraman looks back um, basically at the uh, makes co eye contact with um, what's her face? Uh, Hidako Asami. Asami. Yeah. Um, and then before he flies away and that's where you get that like first realization of, yes, this is Ultraman. He, while he was kind of weird and alien in that first appearance, now he's got all the red shit on there. He's trying to, like, specifically help and save people, um, like, very explicitly. And he's fighting in such a way to try to, like, keep people from being hurt, which is a very Ultraman thing to do. Um, and so it's it's a nice structure where you get your opening episode with that first fight. You then get this episode that kind of establishes, okay, this is what Ultraman is. He's fighting monsters. And then after this is where, okay, now it's not just monsters because this is also where Ultraman moves. The first section of episodes is mostly just random kaiju attacking. Then eventually it becomes now we have aliens and aliens are intelligent and they are actually like hatching plots to try to sort of take over the earth. And then you move into that whole phase of the movie. Yes. Uh, a couple of thoughts on this sequence, because I'm also just running through it on my torrent here. And there's so many good ways that they are emulating the look of suits. There's this moment, because the monster, when Ultraman starts fighting it here with... Because this is the most like pro-wrestling scene in the movie, uh -huh, too, yes. is all those moves. But he does the, the monster comes out with these big tendrils uh, that are mm -hmm. separate from its like drill bit. And those things come out, and then Ultraman comes in and puts one under each of his arms and does a big swing with it. And the way he does that... It's not just like Ultraman's body moving and you see all the like, you know, movements of the suit itself, but like they, the big like tendrils that the monster has 
look like big fucking rubber things that would have been on a suit. They move with those kind of proportions and physicality. And when he's swinging it, it totally looks like that kind of thing. But then with the CGI, you can give a real sense of like the speed and the momentum. And when he throws it, all of the destruction and all of that. And I love that it's it really is going for kind of a best of both worlds approach where you have this kind of you know, smaller scale physical tangibility to it and then the big scale destruction that you can do with these effects. And I just think it's super cool. Yes, it's it's awesome. It's it's incredibly satisfying because as you say, it, it absolutely is the best of both worlds approach. Like you're you're using the special effects to emulate those things about the original version of these kinds of effects that was very satisfying, but able to fill in some of the gaps that those were not able to do, right? Because you know, a lot of those scenes in the old Ultraman shows you're trying to, you're either slowing down the footage or you're speeding up the footage to try to communicate the changes in speed. And that's like, maybe would work fine for the original target audience, but from like a modern film viewer's perspective, it's very silly and it's very obvious what's happening, particularly if the film is ever sped up to try to like communicate. Oh, he's swinging it really fast. It just looks absolutely ridiculous. Um, uh, and, and again, in a way that I enjoy, I enjoy the goofiness of it, but nobody would be able to take it seriously. Um, and here you're able to use the CG effects to actually execute on those kinds of scenes and sell the weight and immensity and power of what's happening here. Uh, and it's, it's great. You know, it's the same kind of, you know, I think revelation everybody had with baby Yoda in the Mandalorian that like, even in the scenes where baby Yoda is not a puppet, they use CG to make him look like a puppet, but have him be able to do things, things that the puppet wouldn't be able to do. And it's like having that physical reference and that physicality there as a thing that really grounds it um, is so important and, and sells the effect, even though you know it's an effect, you're never sort of like deluded into thinking that this is like a real creature or a real like giant person or whatever. Like you, you're very aware the entire time this is a special effect, but because it has its basis in something that is very practical, is real, would have been shot on and on a set um, using props and things like that. It makes the CG and the digital element of it less sort of jarring or apparent, and it allows you to sort of suspend your disbelief much more effectively than if it was just trying to be completely CG and be very, like, upfront about how digital it is um, and trying to just create a totally digital construction without that anchoring in something practical in the real world. Yes. The other thing I wanted to say about just the general episodic structure of this movie is I think it... One, I just love the idea of a film based on a TV show being televisual. Like, Uh that's cool. That's fun to, like, embrace that side of it. It also solves a problem that a lot of American superhero movies started running into, uh, or just, just had always kind of run into, where sometimes when you're trying to do, especially an origin story, and you want to make a big movie and have the movie stretched, have one plot over two hours, you'll often get to the end of the movie, and the character will, like, have only just now maybe become the hero, uh-huh. and you actually got no time with it. Uh, there's a bunch of good examples of this. The Fantastic Four movie from back in the day, not the bad Roger Corman one, but the bad 2005 one. Uh, they're all bad. Um, that one is very much like they bicker for two hours, and then at the end they fight someone, and then at the end maybe they're the Fantastic Four now? I don't know. They've never been those characters. The Amazing Spider-Man, Spidey is out for revenge for half that movie, then he's fighting the lizard, then maybe he's a hero. Man of Steel, Superman doesn't really do normal Superman stuff. Obviously, there are some older superhero movies that got this right, both Superman the movie and Spider-Man, the original Sam Raimi, in part because they go for this very bifurcated three-act approach. 
uh, are very smart about. The character is firmly the superhero. They have made the affirmative choice to go do hero things before they face the big bad. But a lot of movies try to conflate all of this sort of into one, and they really miss the mark. One that, like, spectacularly missed the mark, and it reminds me of Ultraman because they come from a similar genre, is the newer Power Rangers movie, which tries to delay the Power Rangers stepping into their Power Rangerhood so much that they don't get in the suits for 90 minutes of a two-hour movie. And it is absolutely insufferable. And I'm just now imagining the bad version of this movie where Ultraman just doesn't show up until the 90-minute mark, which would be terrible. But this movie, like, because of that episodic structure, by the time you get to the aliens arriving... It's all moving very fast, but everyone's like, Ultraman's a hero. He's the guy here to protect us. And then that's how this the first villain is able to sort of leverage that and have the fake Ultraman and then throw everyone off. And then you keep going from there. And by the end, the character's been pretty well established because you weren't doing one story. You were doing sort of five under one big umbrella, which is kind of what you need to do to adapt something that is serial, whether that be comic books like Spider-Man or a TV show like Ultraman. Yeah, I I absolutely agree, because it's very easy to imagine a version of an Ultraman movie that, like, ends with, in the last fight is the first time he ever fires a spacium beam, is exactly the kind of instinct that um, I think an American director would probably have for to do the story that, oh, you need to save that kind of stuff for the very, very end. I mean, even though I think the scene is on its own very cool in the 2014 Godzilla movie, where the first time Godzilla uses its atomic breath, like, that's a really awesome moment. But you've also sacrificed a lot of the movie that Godzilla hasn't been able to be fully Godzilla yet. And you haven't been able to play with all the Godzilla tools until that one shot right at the end of the film. And now you don't have another opportunity to do anything with it. Um, Whereas Ultraman here is using that, like the Spacium Beam, that's how he's fucking introduced. Like they're not making you wait for you to be able to see all the Ultraman shit. And he uses the Ultra Cutter, which is the big buzzsaw move he uses, um, which is is on that first alien. That's like around the midpoint of the movie. And all that stuff is effective here because you've seen how powerful Ultraman is when you get to the end and he's fighting Zeton and none of that shit works. Like it's it's very impactful. Um and so instead of having the those kinds of very kind of iconic elements of the Ultraman character be payoffs to like a very prolonged setup in the first section of the film. All those things are set up for really satisfying payoff at the end of the movie, which is also how like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man does it and things like that, um, which is a much more satisfying way to structure something like this, especially if I think for anybody, because it's just essential to the character, but especially if you're a fan of it, like I don't want to watch an Ultraman movie and have the Spacium beam only pop up at 90 minutes into it. Like I want to see the fucking Spacium beam. I want to see you do fun things with those different elements. I don't want you to just have to come up with like all this exposition and little things like that, that build up to being able to do the iconography and all that. Just play with it. Uh, It's fine. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about the aliens, because they're a lot of fun. Yes. So we've got uh, our Seto Kaiba, uh, Kinjo Suda himself, voicing alien Zerub. Um, I am, one thing I'm disappointed in the movie, they don't insist on every time they refer to the aliens, calling them whatever, like Zarabo Seijin, which is what they always say in Japanese, which means like the translations always refer to them as alien something, because Seijin just basically <laughs> means like person from that planet. Um, like, you know, Mars is Kase, a margin, a Martian would be Kase Jean. Um, and so while the credits here on, on Wikipedia do call them Alien Zerub and Alien Mephilus, they don't necessarily always insist on every single time they say Mephilus <laughs> saying Mephilus Seijin, which is disappointing a little bit. 
but that's that's a little quip uh that doesn't really matter uh i do love what they do here with the aliens where they use it really effectively to sort of make it so that Ultraman can't just solve these problems, right? Because the things that he's fighting now aren't just giant monsters. They are these intelligent beings that are preying upon, like, the weaknesses of mankind. Um, And so he's dealing with, like, this sort of more psychological threat. Uh, And it's a really cool extrapolation, I think, of these kinds of stories from the show, where in the show, that is the role that the aliens play. They manage to be antagonists that have, like motivations and like plans and things that aren't just about destroying stuff. They usually have like these kinds of schemes and tricks that they're laying out. Um, But what's fun about Sheen Ultraman is it's able to do that on just such a bigger scale. And so you actually have the scenes that you're talking about earlier where like the prime minister of Japan is there talking to the aliens and you get to see all that kind of stuff. And in the original (laughs) shows, those scenes are, it's always like, you know, it's either like you're, it's kind of implied that a scene like that would have happened, or it's usually centered around the alien tricking one of the main characters of the cast, which sort of like makes this, the problem very small scale. Uh, because it's like, why is it always focused around these like five people that work at the SSSP? It's a TV show. It, you know, it is what it is. Here with Sheen Ultraman, it gets to sort of really actually play with this idea of if aliens visited in this kind of setting and if they were trying to use schemes and tricks and things like that to take over the earth like where would they go they wouldn't be going to ultraman they wouldn't well they wouldn't be going to like hyatt sheen and the sssp and those group of like five to six people they would be going to the prime minister of japan they would be going to like the bureaucrats and the politicians and the middle managers and all those people at that upper level of the power structure um, and be manipulating them in order to take over the Earth. And I, I love everything they do with both Zareb and Mephiles on that level and their different plans on just sort of trying to trick humanity and basically selling their own planet to these alien motherfuckers. It's so good. It's so good, and I think it, it does great stuff for the SSSP too because it takes them and kind of makes them middlemen in all of this, uh-huh. right? Because they don't... It's not that they're powerless, but they, they're being, like, given the, the runaround, right? Like, because the yeah. alien is always going through them to the more powerful people, and now they're like, well, what do we do next? That's why the the character who's the captain has to keep going and going like, ah, don't attack yet. Let's see what's going on here. And it's always very funny. Um, but I think it, it makes them real underdogs over the course of the movie. And as you say, often, you know, maybe Ultraman will step in to do the big final battle, but there's going to be a lot of steps along the way before you get there. So, you know, you have the entire sequence with the Zerub part where he has the cloned Ultraman who is like uh, pretending to go destroy well he is destroying stuff but pretending to be Ultraman and so Kaminaga has to like gets kidnapped and then Asami gets the um, the beta capsule in the mail and has to go find him and take it to him and there's a bunch of great spy craft stuff there yeah. and then the big final battle here is one of the most badass things in the movie it's where you get your first real like big hero moment of Kaminaga doing the beta capsule and the pose and everything and then Ultraman coming up but the way they do it is so fucking slick where he he raises his hand and hits the button and then Ultraman's hand comes up behind him in this crazy big like explosion of color and like grabs him and then just 
powers up and goes up through the building and then that is where it saves Asami uh, and I love like all the scenes with her on the different hands of the yes. aliens look so good they look so much like she is sitting in the palm of a dude in a rubber suit which is such a crazy thing to say but like it's a great use of the effects it's like somehow both very large scale and very low rent and then of course he does the big what are you the cutter ray or whatever because he the just ultra, cuts the ultra dude. cutter ultra cutter uh it's pretty badass he cuts that thing into little bits yes uh, which that's another that's a classic ultraman thing ultraman likes to cut the monster into bits um or cut it in half uh in in ultraman ace the one i'm watching right now they've they've upped their game a little bit and they'll sometimes fill the suit with like goop and stuff so that way when it gets cut in half <laughs> like it's like splitting a pumpkin in half or something oh and like all this is like like you know it's luckily they've never had it be red but it's like alien goop comes out of the monsters when you've cut them in half but yeah all this shit is just phenomenal um this whole stretch of the movie like the the weird kind of like spy element is really fun that like as far as i can remember doesn't have much rooting in the original ultraman but i think it just sort of gives a nice kind of different tone and style to this middle section of the movie um and i think it helps kind of set up a little bit of like kaminaga as a character because he comes from that side of the world and i think it's a little bit of this like if you have this sort of like super military organization like the SSSP, what they actually would be in the modern world is they would be a spy like intelligence organization. So it would make sense that you'd have some of that kind of genre element put in there as well, which is very fun. Um, but yeah, all the stuff of Ultraman here where their version of the transformation is incredible. I love the like just the idea of it's Ultraman's hand comes like breaking out of the ground grabs on the Kaminaga and then comes up and he's turned into Ultraman um and then that then sets up where you have the actual same visual image of the Ultraman transformation at the end of the movie um here they're kind of like playing around if you saw this Ultraman transformation from other angles what would it look like rather than just the top down shot which is what the original show used um, and I think that just visually is so cool and it's such a like a crazy um, aesthetic. And then you also have all the stuff with the girl on the hands, which that feels like that is an intentional callback to old Ultraman stuff because you would always do this. There's always like a little like action figure doll in the wide shots in the like hands of the different monsters or aliens and then you have like a close-up shot of the of the lady like standing on a tarp or something that's supposed to vaguely look like Ultraman's hand and then you would have a like Ultraman putting them down but it's like this bad looking cutout of Ultraman's hand just being moved on the film and then just revealing the actress who is already standing there um, and they just do kind of like a, a CG version of those shots that look like real but it's pulling from all the same kind of little visual tricks they would use to try to incorporate those actors and those people into these scenes with the giant monsters in a way that I feel like you wouldn't do that um, normally with like if you just made this movie and it wasn't based on Ultraman I don't think you would have the actress get grabbed by the monster because I think it's kind of <laughs> unbelievable that she's not dead, um, that that would just kill you instantly with how big these things are. Um, but it's uh, there's something fun about them kind of pulling on those little kind of common tropes and threads of the original show. But it's very satisfying here, and it just adds like a, a level of danger to the scene. And then, yeah, then you have the badass fight in the city at night. I do like that they basically have all the major 
locations that you would have in your miniature sets for the monster fights in this movie. You've got the forest. You've got the di- in front of the dam, which is the second kaiju fight in the city, which is this one. Then at some random big oil factory, um, which is a constant thing uh, in old Ultraman and, and Godzilla movies. All these movies love to have it. It's like weird oil refinery or whatever the fuck that is. Um, but I like the city at night is a really good location and having Ultraman fight while he's flying. He does the um, spacium beam while he's flying, which is very cool, and then cuts the guy in half. It's just, it's good. It's just, it's a really great action sequence. It's so good. And like, this one, I think, of all the effects sequences, maybe struck me the most because I think it does a great job with the city stuff mm-hmm. and blending a real cityscape, a fake cityscape, and then all the buildings they wind up getting knocked into and destroying and whatnot. And again, it's it's taking its cues from the, like... On a basic level, it does kind of look like the little, you know, set that you would build in your lot to have the actors in the suits kind of stomp through. But with that just extra level of verisimilitude where you can blend it all here. And so I found it like really kind of awe-inspiring. Like, oh Mm -hmm. my gosh, they're in a city fighting, but we're at this, you know, the big angle that you would shoot a kaiju movie from or something where you can see everything full-bodied. And that just makes it look so cool. Like, I find it more at least fun and impactful than stuff like, you know, Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, which is very accomplished in showing all of its destruction, but is kind of deadening and too 9-11-y in how mm-hmm. it, like, illustrates it all for you. And this is just like, yeah, we got fucking monsters fighting in the city. It looks cool. It, it looks awesome. Yeah, it's it's great. And then you also have, like, one other thing that happens here um, that that is a huge breakaway from Ultraman tradition, though I think it's something this movie, it was a very smart choice for this movie to do this. Everyone finds out that Kaminaga is Ultraman, um, which is a thing that needs to happen. Uh, it, it is like, for, you know, the TV shows, it like basically never happens. Um, it's like sometimes sort of vaguely implied. Maybe this character, really, maybe the captain really knew at some point, um, but it's never really sort of directly stated um, other than one or two characters in Ultra 7 and one or two characters in turn of Ultraman right at the very end find out who Ultraman is. But typically throughout the show, part of the engine is that of the show that makes it work is that nobody knows who Ultraman is. Uh, I, I'm very glad that they didn't do that for this movie because I think it would have been tedious and I like the different sort of like drama adds to the film that okay everyone knows now Kaminaga is Ultraman and that's actually like sort of central to the movie's plot in the second half is what happens now once the world knows that this is a thing that can happen that like oh maybe we could make our own Ultramans with other alien technology we've seen how powerful Ultraman is what if that's a thing that we could harness um, and that there, it makes like Ultraman attainable to the humans in a certain way. And I think that's just such a great sort of twist to add that, again, doesn't have any grounding in the old show. But it's one of those things that makes like kind of elevates this to being like, this is the movie version of Ultraman. Um, it's able to do things that the TV show, by the nature of its sort of repetitive structure, would not be able to broach. Absolutely. And then we get Mephilus, who is one of my favorite characters yes. in the movie. He's such a piece of shit. He's always going around saying like human phrases and then going, that's my favorite phrase. Yes. Or later when he's on the verge of defeat, that's one of my least favorite phrases. And he is so funny. Koji Yamamoto is so funny in this part. The whole plot, like it gets so 
it, into the weeds of like big bureaucratic and like military industrial complex satire and i love it where he's trying to supply them with the beta box so uh-huh. they can do all the gigantism and this is also where you get the extremely neon genesis evangelion image <laughs> as a giant person in the street although uh, that might be a thing from ultraman that that is okay. from that is from the mephilis episode of ultraman okay. he, he turns the lady member of the team into a giant they also did that in my favorite episode of Ultra Q, where it's our normal human human sized characters end up in if they find like a, a city where people have shrunk themselves down and it's a whole like capitalism metaphor. <laughs> um, but it's it, where you have like the normal sized actors obviously because they're just the actors on the little mini sets that you normally build in this great. Um, they do the same thing in that Mephilus episode. And it's, it is hilarious. I, I actually rewatched a clip from it. Cause I was like, cause I half remembered that that was there, but I wanted to confirm um, and seeing the scene of the lady with her costume on just good stopping around the city and smashing the buildings. It's fucking great. And so, yeah, that, that has its roots in the original show. Because it looks so uncanny the way they uh-huh. do it. Cause they've basically, I feel like taken the actress, put her on a green screen, composited her into the images of the city, and then like taking your Photoshop layer and just dragged her to be bigger. Like they haven't adjusted the physics and everything, which is why it looks so crazy and uncanny. But there's even that shot, like I made the Eva reference because there's a moment where she's like laying down and they're looking at her face out through the window. And that's like, there's a direct shot of like one of Ray's big heads at End of <laughs> Evangelion. But now I'm like, uh, he probably got that from Ultraman, didn't he? And uh, it's great. I, I love that whole scene. It is so fucking weird and like but low key like I like part of what's fun about the SSSP characters is that they will take a moment to be in awe of this crazy thing that has happened and then go okay deep breath let's work the problem <laughs> I really like that yes and I love all the stuff of them being like yeah we couldn't like you know we couldn't take a single sample like we tried to cut through her hair with like a chainsaw and all this shit of it yeah like the very like sort of basic scientific way they approach it once they realize that once they confront the insanity of it, they're like, okay, let's move on from this. It's a thing that's happened. How do we deal with it? Yeah, it's fucking great. Um, and then and then just Mephilus himself is an amazing character. I knew I had recognized Yamamoto Koji from something, and now that I'm looking at him, um, he is the bad guy in Lost Judgment, the second Judgment uh, game. Oh. And uh, I was like, I recognize this game from something. It's like, well, he, I, he's obviously it's a video game scan of him, um, but that is an amazing character. Um, and it makes a lot of sense to me. There's a, they're not necessarily that similar, but they have like a sort of the, the, the like darkness inside those characters, like in the, that, like they're covering up with this kind of polite exterior. That element is a pretty similar piece of his character from Lost Judgment. Um, oh, there's something else you recognize him from, Sean. He is Alex Luis Armstrong in the Full Metal Alchemist movies. That's right. Uh, I did not recognize him from that. They have him in like a bald cap and a weird wig in that movie because uh, that's not the best use of a character in that movie. But there he is. That's he's also in that. I, I would I would more jump to uh, a Lost Judgment as a a great uh, performance by this actor, but or this movie because he is he is just so good at as yes. Mephilus staging like the two scenes he has the two big scenes he has with Ultraman um in human form with the one where they're on the swings and then later they like teleport and they're in <laughs> like a, like a ramen shop or wherever just like eating um and having this casual chat about like who can control humanity and all that kind of shit and him just trying to sort of like talk Ultraman and using 
the fact that this like new thing that's been invented for this movie that's not the original show is there's clearly a form of bureaucracy that exists on the in the land of light as well where Ultraman comes from and they have their code and all that kind of shit none of that's from the show they've sort of invented that here for which makes sense it works with the themes of the movie very well um this idea that Ultraman's not supposed to be here doing exactly what he's doing um that he's not meant to you know it's a little bit of a Star Trek you like you're not meant to interfere sort of concept they've added um, but I like I, his response to that, which is that, but I'm not just Ultraman. I'm yes. Ultraman and I'm this human. And so if the idea is not to interfere in human affairs, this human is telling me to interfere, to like do these things. And I think like you start to see in this chapter that sort of thing that's going on inside of him where Ultraman, the character like under the surface, they give him a name even. What is it? Like Lyta or something? Um, yeah, um, uh... his, his alien name. Whoever he is seems like he's a very like logical being who probably is like a rule follower, but he has had this weird like kind of um, near death kind of experience merging with this other person, and he's seeing the world differently. Olympia is what they call him, yes. and um, and I like that he's kind of adjusting on the fly to that, where he has this strong sense of right and wrong, but he's also in a new scenario. You know, it's subtle and it's not like the main, main, main focus of the movie. There's a lot of things going on, but like I think it's very well done. Yeah, and it's it's very satisfying seeing that sort of because I, mean, well, I think one of the things the movie is doing is is that 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 moral core and that moral center of Ultraman and Kaminaga is just like sort of completely preserved from the original show um, and that old Ultraman show philosophy where those shows are so optimistic and so hopeful and they they present this worldview that is incredibly positive and kind of uplifting and, it, it, you know, partially because it's a children's programming, but also because it comes out from the 60s and early 70s and there's like, you know, it's similar to the original Star Trek show that has this very kind of utopian vision. The original Ultraman um, the idea is always in the original Ultraman shows that the group like the SSSP you're seeing, they're not just a Japanese group. You're seeing the Japanese branch of a worldwide organization. And there's like the HQ at New York has sent us this. And, you know, there's the French, like there's a whole episode in Ultraman where they go to, they don't actually go to like France in terms of the film crew doesn't go there. But like the, the characters are meant to have gone to France and all this kind of stuff. Um, and there's a, meant to be a global, international, like, the whole world is in this together, and we're all out here for peace, and we're, like, fighting against the evils of um, these monsters and these aliens. Um, and obviously you can read the aliens metaphorically if you want as being all the, like, representing all the things that in that world vision are the kinds of people that aren't actually included in that kind of globalist vision. There's a lot of, like, interesting sort of pieces of criticism you can use to and lenses you can use to look at Ultraman, but the show, the vision the show is trying to feed you on the face of it is positive globalism. We are here as a community of humanity, as a world, fighting against threats that come from outside this world. And that's like the worldview that it wants you to see. And Sheen Ultraman is like, that is, I think, what Ultraman himself is trying to fight for this idea that humanity can move past these issues, that there is hope for humanity, that we can like have this positive more hopeful future but the reality of the world that Ultraman actually exists in the machine Ultraman is much darker and much more cynical than that and instead what you really see is all this kind of petty infighting and political posturing between these different nations you see Japan as a nation that doesn't have a lot of sort of um like weight or power it can throw around compared to like the United States um and some of the other world powers and so Japan is like 
wanting to use all these different things that the aliens are showing up to give them in order to like boost their place in their level of influence in the world stage um, rather than being at the kind of whims of the U.S. And there's a lot of like similar to Shin Godzilla. There's some fun commentary about the U.S. and Japan relationship like that scene of where they do the bombs on the monster and it doesn't do shit. And then the guy's like, uh, make sure that you uh, build the like ministry of defense or something or instead of us. Um, and there's a lot of little things like touches like that. Um, and so those are the kinds of that kind of petty infighting and posturing that the world governments are trying to do. That's the thing that these aliens are trying to manipulate and play humanity against itself. So that way they can end up in control. Um, and Ultraman is still trying to fight for that same simple virtue based idealistic like utopian vision he has from that original show and he still has that fundamental moral spine and background and that's also what the rest of the SSP are fighting for and it's one of the things about Sheen Ultraman that made me feel like this is kind of I think how a modern superhero or Superman movie should maybe try to approach some of this kind of stuff is that Ultraman as a character is still that same kind of hero from a much more simple world in terms of what those old stories represented um and that character remains intact, the world around that character has changed. And that friction is where you get, I think, the most juicy pieces of the story here. Absolutely. Uh, I agree with that 100%. And I also think that in the next Superman movie, James Gunn, if you're listening, free idea, you need to have a scene where Superman and Lex Luthor are on the fucking swings together. And Lex Luthor is doing his villainous monologue while swinging back and forth. Because that is... One of the best stagings of a scene I have ever seen. I love the sheer audacity of it, of having them both sitting. And, and of course, Ultraman or uh, Kaminaga is just sitting there, you know, quietly on his swing while Mephilus is having fun swinging back and forth, uh-huh. just grand old time. And then when they get discovered, they just go to a ramen shop to get what well, he transports them to a ramen shop. Uh, all of it. It's amazing. I was cackling through that entire scene. I just I can feel like Shinji Higuchi and Hideaki Anno in a room together going. Should we try? Should we do? Should we do the swing idea? Should we do it? Oh, let's do it! Let's do it! And because it's so bonkers, it's so silly, and I adore it. Yeah, it's completely silly. It's a, it's so funny, and I also I just love the way that both of these aliens, Zerub and Mephilus, are written because it also is a thing that reminds me of some of the aliens' original Ultraman, where they're like you kind of expect that the way they would talk is very like heightened and extreme and like, I am <laughs> alien Mephilus from the world of Mephilus and I shall rule the humanity. And like use a lot of like obviously Japanese language signifiers to sort of other them and make them heightened and sort of like supreme. But a lot of times the aliens just talk very casually and have this very sort of conversational attitude that is so endearing and very kind of funny. I mean, it's particularly funny when they're like in the, the like fucking costumes and there's not even a human face to them. It's just there's there's this weird sludge man, um, but he's just talking like he's, you know, a random salary man hanging out with his co-workers, um, you know, at the ramen shop where these guys has had a couple of shots of sake, you know, like that's so much the way that they're written. And they've absolutely captured that exact tone with Zareb and Mephiles. Um And I think they've, they've heightened it by doing the staging of those scenes in that way at the swing set in, in the shop. But like the, that tone of voice and the mannerisms and all of that, it, it does like remind me a lot of the way those characters were written. And it's, it's so fun. It's, it's just a cool way to envision these aliens who are just trying to be very like 
personable and kind of seem like, yeah, we're we're just like you humans, man. Like we're, you know, we got the same shit going on and we just want to help you guys out. Um, and the way that they're almost too friendly. Um, it's a very fun way to characterize it. I think it goes against the grain you would expect. And that was true of the original show. And it's very true of them here as well. Absolutely. Uh, God, there's so much fun. And then our final one is like, is Zofi, who is much more like your traditional movie yes. villain because he's got his seriousness. He comes down as a big, like, gold version of Ultraman and all of that. And I, the, as you were saying, this is a character I, I take it from the original series and everything, but I just, it, he worked for me here. You have Zeton, which is this, like, is the most Shin Godzilla thing in the movie because it's a little more Lovecraftian up in the sky with its big ball. What do they call it? Like, they call it, like, Tetra Kelvin is the like the yes. unit of measurement of, of the heat it's going to unleash on the Earth, and then I love there's that moment where Taki is like a Tetra Kelvin, and he does the calculations really quick, and he's like that'll burn the entire solar system. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh, it's such a great uh, like final villain for Ultraman in this movie. Yeah, it's it's really good. I mean, all the stuff they do with Safi is great um, because it's all very different. Like this is probably the most different in terms of what they're pulling from original Ultraman and how they're changing it. Because the ending of this movie, at its core, is very similar to the last episode of Ultraman, um, which is where Zeton comes from, and also Zafi comes from, but then the original Ultraman show, those two characters are unrelated. Zafi in the original show is kind of just like a plot device to allow the show to finish, um, so that like he can come. You have a different Ultraman. He's meant to be like Ultraman's commander in that original show that ha- is able to have that conversation with Ultraman, which is the first time you've actually heard Ultraman, Ultraman speak since episode one. Um, and that's where they do pull this one line that Yamada Koichi gives so much weight here. It's like, have you really come to love humans so much, Ultraman? It's just such a, a gorgeous line. And it's, it's quoting directly that scene from the original show. Um, but obviously, Zafi is a much more positive character. He's not trying to destroy the Earth. Um, it broke my heart to see Zafi be evil because Zafi is just such a good buddy. He's just like an ultra buddy. I love Zafi. Um, in the original show, he's like very supportive of Ultraman. Um, and he's just there to help him. Um, and then realizing that, okay, like you want to sacrifice yourself for this human. Um, and then obviously all that gets retconned as soon as they want to bring Ultraman back. And all that's that's not important for this conversation. But... Zafi's there as just this plot device. Um, and then the Zeton is an alien that is just like a big alien costume man who he shows up. And that's like the one alien that Ultraman couldn't beat. Um, and so Zeton defeats Ultraman. But the rest of the SSSP, um, Ultraman has bought them enough time that they were able to invent this weapon that they used to defeat Zeton. And the whole message of that last episode, it's one of the best episodes of that original show because it just thematically comes together so effectively, is that like... The, what Ultraman has done here is he has helped humanity be able to defend itself. And so at the, the last episode, it's the only time Ultraman doesn't win. The Zeton alien defeats Ultraman, um, and then the SSSP beat um, the alien and win the day. And then Zafi shows up. Zafi has that conversation with Ultraman, separates Ultraman from Hayata. Hayata is able to survive, but Hayata has lost all of his memories, Hayata being the human host. Um, of all the Ultraman stuff, which again, that all gets retconned like two shows later when they want Hayata to come back for an episode and he clearly remembers all this shit. But anyways, that's what they're pulling from all those different kind of pieces and the like plot points of the last stretch of this film hits all of those different chunks like really perfectly. The Obviously the biggest difference is 
Zafi's role here and the way that the Zeton manifests is on this whole different scale. Um, they've like totally reimagined what Zeton is. Like you can see a lot of the cues in the design. The different big yellow lights that are on there are from the Zeton aliens original design. Um, you know they're pulling a lot of the design cues, but they've gone for something very kind of maximalist and very different there. But it, it works so well. Like I think the way that they've want to communicate this is a problem. That's a global scale problem that one person, no man, even an Ultraman, cannot solve this on their own. Um, instead, it is going to take the combined, the combined might and ingenuity of humanity to solve this. And Ultraman is there to give them time and give them hope so that they can solve this problem. And once they have done that, it is time for humanity to go forth on their own. Um, and Kaminaga is, is able to rejoin you. And the way that they've sort of weaved all those original themes from that original finale but combined it with this darker, more cynical perspective on the world um, that, you know, that having Zafi have this more villainous role is a key part of. I think it's probably like for me, the genius stroke of this kind of screenplay of this movie and how it's combining all the old stuff with the new stuff here. Absolutely. I honestly, I found it like surprisingly moving the yes. final like act of this movie where, you know, because we've seen, even though this is a movie again, because of the televisual structure, they've been able to build enough of a formula of Ultraman coming in and saving the day several times that when he goes up to fight Zofi, you think he's at least going to be able to put up more of a fight and he really can't. And so then he comes back down, but he has left that flash drive there for Taki uh, and the rest of the group at the SSSP. And then when they find that and they start working on it and they bring all the minds of the world together and they find this way that that they can win uh it's it's like really kind of touching it i think plays off of what we have seen of the sssp so far it's played off of how ultraman has learned about humanity and that fundamentally he does all of this out of a respect for them his first experience with humanity was a guy dying for a kid he didn't know and so he has this faith that he's able to put that makes everyone around him better at the end of the movie and that's just damn good superhero storytelling yeah. you know it's it's like the end of spider-man one with the cheesy but wonderful moment of all the new yorkers throwing shit at the green goblin because you know what spidey's a weirdo in a mask but he's our weirdo in a mask god damn it yeah and then and then like the zafi of it all like the this new version of zafi i just think is such a great creation obviously Yamadari Koichi's voice adds a lot to it because it's like there's just so much weight that that character has um but I think he's able to communicate both like that there's an alienness to him and a strictness to Zafi but there is just enough warmth there that you believe that at the end when Zafi says like I have like what humanity has done here I have like come to respect them um, and I believe that it would be too much of a waste to to destroy them. Um, and there's like, I think you almost hear like a relief in Zafi there that like, you know, I don't think he relishes what he's doing, um, that he just believes in whatever this code of light is and all that kind of stuff so much. He was going along with it. But that last conversation between Zafi and Ultraman that again is pulling a lot from the aesthetics of the original show where they're both suspended in this weird psychedelic space and they're talking to each other with their big Ultraman voices um, and have this last conversation about the worth of humanity and the value of letting them grow and believing in them and believing in hope and that there can be a better future. And maybe they won't wipe themselves out or wipe out the universe, um, and that there could be like a happier path forward, um, even if it means that Ultraman must sacrifice himself. It's a very sweet ending. And I, I think that like Zafi's role there. Um, and his, you know, he's not in the movie a lot, but that like character shift from the first time you see him to that last conversation, um, I find very effective. Absolutely. 
another thing I just have to sing the praises of with this film is the music. Yes. Uh, it is so good. It's Shiro Sagisu heading things up as he did on Shin Godzilla and Neon Genesis Evangelion and everything, but it is using a bunch of old pieces. I actually texted you about this because mm-hmm. I was curious because Shin Godzilla did a really interesting thing where it just lifted tracks like from the original films, like the original uh, Akira Ifukube Godzilla score. It had tracks from Evangelion and it just kind of brought them all in in this delightful hodgepodge, mm-hmm. but kind of a hodgepodge, right? Uh, and this movie is doing something a little different, I guess. Yeah, as far as I can tell, um, like I haven't had time to go like listen to everything very specifically. It didn't sound to me other than like, you know, the sound effect at the beginning with the Ultra Q title and stuff. That's pulled straight. Like, I think that's literally just the sound effect from the show. But generally speaking, there there didn't seem to be a lot of stuff to me that was just the exact recordings. But there are lots of different themes that they pull. Like, the, there's like an instrumental version of the main Ultraman theme. There's a kind of like military march um, from the original show, because all of these have that military march kind of theme when the main crew deploys, um, that they have a reinterpretation of here. So yeah, it is definitely pulling from a lot of the different um, music from that original show. And then there's also like some original stuff as well. I really want to like uh, get the soundtrack and, and listen to it because it is really good. I loved this so much. I actually, I have a CD Japan order that hasn't shipped yet, and I just added the soundtrack to that because I could not find it to download anywhere. So, Sean, I will share that with you when it comes. Uh, But I am very excited because I like, I adore the music here. There's so much variety to it. There's a big, big, like, jazz piece in the middle that, like, I thought was really cool. Uh, But there's just so many different styles. It's all so dynamic. There's a lot of, there's some pieces that definitely sound like they're also from the Eva corner of the universe Mm -hmm. with Shiro Sagisu and all of that. It's a great soundtrack. Yeah, it's a phenomenal soundtrack. Um, And then it also does have... Um, your in credit song also kicks ass with this movie because it's a uh, Kenshi Yonezu, who everybody loves him. Um, he has the song M87, which is the the nebula that uh, Ultraman comes from. And I've I've listened to the song a lot when it originally came out because I just really like Kenshi Yonezu's stuff. But then I had kind of forgotten that this song that that's where the song was from. So when that the in credit started playing and that song came on, I'm like, oh yeah, fuck yeah, this song rules. Yes, absolutely. It's really good. And I love how they kick into it from the end of the movie, which is the end of the movie is them all looking down at Kaminaga as he awakens. And then it's just right into the song in the end credits. It's a very good mic drop kind of ending. Yes. Yeah. That very kind of just like sudden cut as the eyes open. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. No, I loved it. Uh, all of that. Uh, so, so music's great. The We talked about the cinematography already, but I didn't notice until looking at the credits online here. Did you see there were eight credited cinematographers on this movie? Oh my God, yes. I haven't seen yes, that now. I've never seen anything like that before. It's a bunch of people. It's people who worked on Eva. It's people who have worked on Shin Godzilla. Shinji Higuchi and Hideaki Anno are both independently credited as cinematographers here. And I can kind of see why. Like, I have to imagine it was just a group effort of like, Here's 50 GoPros or whatever kind of small mobile camera they had. Because they were clearly using something like that. And I'm like, just put them places. Just find fun places to set up shots. And there's just such a reckless abandon to how much they're doing there. Uh, and then the editing was done by Hideaki Anno himself and Yohei mm-hmm. Kurihara. And in part due to COVID stuff, but I also have to imagine because of just the editorial complexity of this movie, it was a full two and a half years between filming yeah. and releasing this movie. And I think you can feel that 
kind of effort went into the edit because it is so tight. It is so interestingly cut together. Every cut, I think you feel a little bit of an impact of, but it's not like overly fast or unrhythmic. It's really, really smart. I actually, honestly, this coming out, or us doing this the same week that Oppenheimer came out, Oppenheimer, I think, is there's a skill to the edit that's very high, but structurally, I think it's just way over tightened. I think this movie both manages to be very fast and to breathe and really kind of astonish you with its momentum in a way that something like, you know, Oppenheimer did not work for me. And I think this is a a real editorial masterclass in the same way Shin Godzilla was. Yeah, I mean, especially with this one, because it's it's having to sort of juggle these different storylines with the episodic structure. It definitely is just such a, I think on both that maxi and that mini level, it is a very, very well edited movie. Yes, so... Yeah, and it is it is interesting how many hats Hideaki Anno wore here, even though uh-huh. he didn't direct it. He's got a DP credit, he wrote the movie, he's got an editing credit, and a mocap credit for uh, half playing Ultraman. That's a that's a fun set of things he got to do for this movie. Yes, yeah, even though uh, you know it's it's not an Anno directed one, which I think like obviously hey Higuchi Shinji uh, directs his own movies, um, and he's really good at it too. But you definitely like have that. Uh, there's there's you get enough of the Anno DNA. Um, in here that it yeah that part of it works and is fun. And again, if people have not seen the pictures of Anno in the mocap suit, you have to see them because it's so fucking good. It's so <laughs> funny. That goofy old man. Oh, I love it. Yeah, he's he's living his best life at this yes. point. Just his what he has called his uh, Shin Japan Heroes Universe, which is these last four movies he's done of Shin Godzilla. Evangelion 4, which in Japan they're all called Sheen Evangelion, and then this and the new Kamen Rider. Uh, I love it. I'm very curious what his next act is, having wrapped up this like decade-long project. Yeah, I, it is like it is very like satisfying feeling like Hideaki Anno is seems like he's in a very happy place. You know, it's, it's, it's you know that original Eva TV show. You could tell that he was not uh, when he was making no. that show and in the <laughs> Evangelion. And I think all of his stuff is way better. When he's way happier, right? I think Shin Godzilla, the Shin Evangelion movies, particularly the fourth one, this, um, that's like his best stuff. That's my favorite stuff he's done that I've seen. So Me too. It's, yeah. it's, I think it's productive that he seems to be very much enjoying himself here. And again, I have, I have no real past Ultraman experience. This is like one of my favorite fucking superhero movies ever. If we were to redo that like top ten superhero mm. movies list we did, yeah. I would find a spot for it. It would absolutely be on there. Uh, the only qu- a possible question would be, is this in its own sort of subgenre? And then I'd go, no, fuck it. It's, it's, it's Ultraman. He's a big superhero. It's great. Uh, yeah. And, and here's another thing I observed looking at the, the stats here, Sean. Hideaki Anno revealed the budget of this movie was roughly between five and a half and six and a half million dollars USD. Uh, if you convert the yen, uh, it made about thirty-five million dollars in Japan. So giant multiplier on its profit. Also, six million dollars. Six million. What is the last time a fucking Marvel movie looked this good? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, and, and honestly, like Guardians of the Galaxy three looked very good. But if you take that out of the equation and you're looking at stuff like Ant Man three, and then you're like. Where's the money going? It's just so crazy. And I understand Japan is different than America, and there's all sorts of things that make budgets different. But, like, again, if I were working in Hollywood and I were making a big movie, I would really take a hard look at what Sheen Ultraman is doing because on, you know, infinitely smaller resources, I think it's making something just so much more exciting. And a lot of it isn't even down to the effect sequences. It's just let's get a bunch of cheap digital cameras and do cool kinds of shots and and experiment with that. And that doesn't cost much money at all 
yeah, uh, it it is like it is insane when you think about the budget side of it. Like it is just like how many how many Sheen Ultramans could we get if if you if you just didn't make that new Indiana Jones movie? We, we three hundred like, million dollars. Yeah, like several hundred Sheen Ultramans, please. <laughs> yep. Here, let's do it. Three hundred divided by six point five million. You could make this movie forty six times. Before you would reach the cost of Indiana Jones 5, a movie that I will say looks definitively so much worse than this. This movie is so much more interesting looking than that. Oh, my God. Yeah, uh, it is. That's I hadn't even thought about that. And as you say, obviously, there's like, hey, Harrison Ford is not in this movie. Like Harrison Ford was probably the budget of this movie or more. Right. Um, to, to just for Indiana Jones. So it's, you know, it's a very different world you're looking at and how those budgets are made. But if you're just looking at the raw numbers and what you get on the other side of those raw numbers, I, I would take 40 Sheen Ultramans uh, rather than another Indiana Jones. That would be pretty good. I absolutely would as well. Uh, this is great. I really love this. I'm glad we talked about it. Yeah, me too. I'm glad that I finally just, you know, obviously I've been I've been talking my Ultraman shit on here every once in a while when like a big crazy episode I see happens. But it's it's very fun to be able to actually like have a full conversation on an Ultraman thing. Absolutely. So uh, when are we going to talk about Shin Kamen Rider? Should we do that soon? I'm, I'm down for that. Yeah, that's that's out. And I have no Kamen Rider experience. The most I know about Kamen Rider, it's a man with a mask. He's got a motorcycle and he fights a group called Shocker. That's like that is my that is my Kamen Rider knowledge uh, in its entirety. Well, then maybe coming soon to the Weekly Stuff podcast, two novices talk about Shin Kamen Rider. I say let's fucking do it.